listen to the Directors Club with Brett and Al. We're podcasting as one of the members of the Now Playing Network. Here over at the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director in each episode. We look at their breakout films, their career touchstones, their personal labors of love, and hidden gems that are found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films that can come up when you look at the director's whole body of work. Uh, come join us on the film Journey. A journey which this time takes us to a very extensive and varied director. One who's made some of the most, like, independent films you can imagine and leads up to, like, Oscar-winning blockbusters. We're talking in this episode about filmmaker Jonathan Demme. Hi, I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And to help us in our quest along the works of Mr. Jonathan Demme, we have a very special guest, a renaissance person on film in the Chicagoland area. He is a person who teaches film classes. He writes on film for RogerEbert.com and for the McGill Cinema Annual. And he's a film critic. And very recently, he's not only had like a podcast talking about the films of the summer of 1988, but he was the organizer of the short films at the Chicago Film Critics Film Festival. And we're very pleased to have uh, Colin Suter. Uh, hi, welcome, Colin. Thanks. Uh, nice intro. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's quite a mouthful to go and like, say all the things that you do for the Chicago film scene. <laughs> Thanks. Not uh, to mention being uh, part of our uh, film discussion uh, meetup group. Yes. So I know that's not on your resume, but it's we're, a, we're no, very but happy you're there. It's a really important part of my life, so I, especially recently. So uh, so it's it's helped my personal life very much, and so it means a lot to me to be a part of those groups. Oh, wonderful. Cool. Yeah. yeah, it's always it's always great to be able to have you for one of uh, the events of the meetup group. Like, <laughs> oh, thanks. I mean, you just provide like an, an invaluable perspective of one of which we were all we will find during this uh, during this particular podcast because we're talking about this director who has had a whole vast range of different kinds of films. And I believe you are kind of, one of the reasons you're on here is that you were quite a fan of his work. I am. I always, I've been a fan of his work since the mid eighties. when I was um, 12 or 13 years old, I saw stop making sense for the first time. And it was at a time when I stopped listening to music altogether because I, all I knew at the time that was out there was, New Kids on the Block, Hair Metal, Whitney Houston, and that's all I knew. I, I didn't know anybody who who could you know steer me in the right direction, saying no, there's all these great bands out there too. Um, so, uh, Stop Making Sense was a kind of a revelation for me, but it wasn't until I saw Something Wild and then Swimming to Cambodia where I was really started to become a fan of Jonathan Demme's work. I hadn't seen anything else that he had done, but those three films really meant a lot to me because those are during my formative years as a film watcher. When I started watching films for more than just entertainment, I was watching them for the craft, and uh, these three films sort of opened up the doors for me of like what a film could be. You know, a film could start out as a light comedy and then you know gradually turn into this dark thriller in the same breath and succeed in that sort of tonal shift. Uh, a movie could just consist of a guy sitting at a desk talking for 90 minutes, and it will be incredibly cinematic and uh, hypnotic. And, you know, th those things I just didn't know that that's what films could be. I didn't know that that's what a film could be. So 
when Jonathan Demi died recently, that really that was a, a celebrity death or whatever you want to call it. That really did affect me. Um, most celebrity deaths are like, oh, that's that's too bad, or oh, that's try, oh man, it's too soon or too young. Oh man, that's really too bad. But this one really, this one got me. Um, was it because like it got you these? These these feelings that you were like that you got out of these formative films that you're like yeah. oh we're not going to get the chance to have those or that yeah or, or just for the person who got those experiences for yeah you. because I mean he was a director who you never knew what you were going to get next from him it was always a surprise around the corner whenever you know a new Jonathan Demi movie was out there it was always something oh wow I didn't I didn't know he was making that kind of film. Oh, this just came out of the, you know, oh, he's got a, he made a Justin Timberlake concert film. Oh, that's cool. Oh, yeah. I didn't know he was doing that. That's great. And, you know, not there, it's hit and miss a lot, but, um, he just always brought so much enthusiasm, uh, to his work. It didn't matter if, if so much if it was, a film that didn't work or not it was definitely something from his heart you so. know De- demi seems as much a fan of things mm-hmm. a- as he is a creator if you you look at the wide variety of source material he uses you know he find you know finds the the rock and roll bands he loves and makes great concert movies about them and puts or, their names in the opening credits you know <laughs> right right or works of literature or uh, other films. Mm-hmm. He has this seemingly endless uh, source material that can come from anywhere, and that, that really makes his stuff exciting because you can't predict from one movie to the next uh, what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. For whatever you know, you can say about Jonathan Demme, and over the course of this podcast, I imagine we're <laughs> going to say a fair amount, you can't have the credit of someone who makes like an Oscar-winning film and then sees fit to give a equal or decent level of attention to a Justin Timberlake concert film, mm-hmm. and with no apparent like you know loss of creative interest yeah. to it, and that speaks towards like kind of an openness of his character, which I think uh, manifests itself over the films in various different ways. Yeah, which- he's, he's like Steven Soderbergh in that in that sense, in that he him and uh, and and Richard Linklater also they, these are directors who have managed to forge a nice career in both the indie scene and in the mainstream. So he'll do one for the studio and then one for himself and then one mm-hmm. for the studio and one for himself. Mm-hmm. And it's a, that's always a, a really great way to run your career if you have that kind of freedom. Cool. And it leads me to just wonder something that I've not had enough experience with, but you guys might be able to help me out, which is like on Demi's early career. Like he mm-hmm. had a fairly significant run with uh, Roger Corman. Is that not right? Jonathan Demme was was asked by Corman in uh, in an interview once what film school he went to, and he said, I went to the Roger Corman Film School. Mm-hmm. And so before we talk about Demme, we, we should have just a brief uh, introduction to, to Roger Corman, and it will be brief because uh, happily... Our former host of the Directors Club, Jim, has done an excellent episode giving us full detail about uh, Roger Corman's uh, career. And uh, if you go to the uh, Directors Club episode list and get a little earlier than when we arrived, you're going to get a a treat with a a great episode on, on Roger Corman. 
But the short version is he directed a number of low-budget films of, of varying quality, cult classics, things like uh, The Little Shop of Horrors, Bucket of Blood. Probably the most acclaimed films he directed were um, a series of uh, Vincent Price movies based on Edgar Allan Poe stories. Uh, probably the most acclaimed being The Mask of the Red Death. Then, after he stopped directing, he founded uh, New World Pictures and very cheaply started uh, producing basically 60s and 70s genre exploitation films. What's notable is not just that this is the way he figured out how to make a lot of money in Hollywood, but that he discovered some of uh, New Hollywood's greatest directors uh, in those days, producing early films from Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola. And with Jonathan Demme, he uh, formed a partnership that uh, went, went about three films. We had all of the lowdown from the bank heist last night. His best friend was a robber and his wife was a thief. All the children were killers. They couldn't get no The first one is Caged Heat from 1974, which uh, is solidly part of the women in prison genre. Uh, we, we follow Jacqueline, uh, played by Erica Gavin. After her drug arrest, she's uh, imprisoned and alternately uh, fights and bonds with her fellow in inmates and also contends with uh, the warden, played by uh, Barbara Steele, and a uh, very creepy doctor of many perversions. Yeah, you know, that certainly sounds like a woman in prison movie to me. <laughs> like, uh, I really hope he did the checklist on the shower scene. Yeah, I mean, that's when you're right, making a movie for Corman. You can make it however you want to make it, as long as it has boobs and car chases and, you know, defying authority and things that will attract the drive-in crowd. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have all those things, you can make it as artsy as you want. You can make it as, you know, what uh, as crazy as you want. And when you watch Caged Heat, uh, it, is a, it is an exploitation film, to be sure. But Jonathan Demme doesn't treat it like an exploitation film as much uh, as you would think from looking at the poster. There's still a sensibility there that is that would last throughout his career. And even some people that he had on that film would go on to be partners uh, for the rest of his career. Is that uh, right? Like, who are some of the... Well, like, the, the director of photography is Tak Fujimoto. And he's been with... He was Demi's cinematographer through most of his films, a lot of his major films. And... Um, Gary Getzman is a unit producer. He's produced a lot of Demi's films. He shows up in a lot of Demi's films. He's got music by John Cale. And there's um, just a lot... There, even visually, there's kind of a... Some of Demi's sensibilities are, are show up 
mm-hmm. early in mo- early in this early. J- in just to confirm, because you're kind of blowing my mind, that this is John Cale from the Velvet Underground. I believe so. Yeah. Did Caged Heat? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It was the yeah. 70s, after all. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That that's amazing. Now, so, now I mean, it's yeah. causing me to look for uh, see if like uh, Philip Glass did Penitentiary Three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, right away he's he's going after interesting people to help him make a film that uh he that he also wrote i mean he 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 was commissioned to write the script as well and there's all you know there's uh you know surreal dream sequences in it there are there's a weird sort of reverse drag vaudeville show which shows uh you know demi's uh enthusiasm for filming performance right right off the bat so I mean it's a wow. really interesting I mean at the time probably nobody I don't know what people thought of it when they first saw it they probably just looked like an average exploitation film. Huh. But when you watch it now knowing Demi's work you you see the building him like putting the building blocks together. Right. It it followed in the footsteps of a few other uh Corman women in prison movies uh The Big Dollhouse, Women in Cages, uh, the big bird cage, and uh, from what I, I understand, uh, this is much better than any of those, and uh, probably uh, probably better than it needs to be. You uh, you kind of look at it's still a women in prison movie. That's the thing is that it, it, it doesn't transcend. There's still things that are very gratuitous, very exploitative, but you're also seeing the use uh, you know filmmaking at a higher level than you'd expect uh the film opens up with some bright backlit uh uh lighting of the prison and and Colin uh I like that you mentioned the uh variety uh scene with the uh women uh doing a, a comedy routine because it was it was probably the first signal here that they were going to treat these women as actual characters with personalities rather than than just sex objects which is not mm-hmm. to say he doesn't treat them as sex objects which he, which he does he it's just that he doesn't just treat them that way he he humanizes them and i think one of the things that uh somebody once referred to this as the the citizen cane of women in prison <laughs> movies and uh you know again we have to take that into account the competition but the fact that by the end escape and chase scenes and uh action scenes i actually cared about what happens to these characters i think is that you know, right it has yeah. no i don't want to exaggerate i this is not i think un- unless you are kind of into the whole quentin tarantino grindhouse world and and love that kind of thing to death i, I still can't really consider this a, a a good film but again better than it needs to be if you actually care about the ladies in prison that you're watching that's something quite special in a movie i think yeah i mean it's it helps that he that jonathan demi wrote it and jonathan demi as a human being just he this is this shows that he really loves his characters no matter who they are no matter what their background is he loves his characters so he's gonna so something like caged heat is gonna feel different from your average women in prison film which is you know made by people who don't really care about their characters they're just trying to appease the drive-in crowd and and just 
catering to the lowest common denominator, but right. yeah. delivering he, delivering the goods. Even you know? even the warden, who's uh, played by uh, Barbara Steele of uh, mm-hmm. Black Sunday fame, huh. uh, she's she's in in a wheelchair, and and yes, is being the hard ass warden you'd expect from this kind of movie. But yeah. she's even given a little sympathy where you you don't you know you. She's one of the baddies, but still, you're like you, you, you view her with not with complete contempt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a what a nice yeah. uh, what a nice debut. That's mm-hmm. uh, very much looking forward to taking a look at that. And part from my other regular viewing of women in prison films. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then he follows it up with uh, Crazy Mama. Cra- Crazy Mama, which in itself is a follow up to a number of other uh, Corman goodies like Bloody Mama, Big Bad Mama. And Big Bad Mama too. So this was meant to be in in that cycle. Uh, Wait, some of the earlier ones with Angie Dickinson. Good bonus episode right. on that side. So, so now we have a, a film that's uh, PG rated. They, they were asked to deliver a PG movie, so it's a little less uh, exploitative, but still kind of low budget, insane. So this movie it, it takes place in the early rock and roll fifties, uh, where three generations of uh, the Stokes family women embark on a crime spree after their beauty parlor is repossessed, and uh, <laughs> along the way you have some very unlikely romantic uh, entanglements, uh, and of course uh, many a car chase. Okay, hmm. How do those yeah. uh, what what how do those romantic entanglements? manifest themselves <laughs> i hate to say this but they involve ralph mouth from happy days <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, wow. yeah sorry folks but yes. uh donnie most <laughs> ralph from happy days has done something other than that yes which is this yeah where he is part of a a triangle with uh cloris leachman plays the uh title role and uh her daughter is involved with uh with Ralph Malf and this uh, this motorcycle uh, motorcycle guy uh, played by Cloris Leachman's own son, <laughs> and they're in a uh, his name's Snake Snake. Yes, yeah. they, they get they with get the into biggest a... pompadour you've ever seen in any film, <laughs> right? Because apparently he had one of those seventies giant uh, long hair things, but he wouldn't cut it for the film, so they huh. turned it into a, a, a ridiculous fifties pompadour. Yeah, wow. And and the casting in this movie is is pretty special all around because uh, you have uh, old time uh, uh, movie actress uh, Anne Southern as Cloris Leachman's character's mother, and then in a small role, uh, Jim Backus uh, appears, uh, Mister Howell from uh, Gilligan's Island, uh, or. Um, you could say from uh, Rebel Without a Cause. <laughs> and, it sounds uh, delirious to me. I it's a little have to say. It, it's a little delirious uh, because it, it, it's like all these, none of these people belong in the same movie uh, kind of situations. <laughs> and then it's also very much part of the. 70s, 1950s nostalgia craze. So you've got a lot of early rock and roll music. Uh, the song uh, Money, That's What I Want is played uh, repeatedly and it, it, it's very interested on a low budget and, and pretty successful in this regard of, of being a period piece and, and, and evoking uh, the 50s, particularly the crazy low budget you know, car chase crime movies of the 50s. Hmm. This leads me to like think of an aspect of Demi that like your description of Crazy Mama already shows to be apparent in that 
it looks like Demi would take these disparate people and he wants to get him in this film. And he and through film after film of his, he he takes these people from like these kind of different walks of life, these different acting styles, and maybe even different motivations for their characters in the story, and then he tries to make them fit. And I, it's the spirit that I think is consistent, and sometimes it works, and then sometimes it doesn't. I mean, is does it kind of work in Crazy Mama, or you're just like just being <laughs> continually pulled in different directions as as Thurston Howell and Ralph Mouth like fight it out? I I think it works because the spirit, like you were saying, the spirit is there. Okay. Um, I, I it's a it tonally it is consistent. So it is a little mad. It is a madcap comedy. It is farcical it is uh over the top in 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 all the right places i think uh is it great no but um there's definitely you could you can kind of see that you could see this uh, uh an aspect of demi's career when you go back and watch this movie like he he likes making crazy zany comedies you know it, it's it's a nice change of pace for him and this is him trying it out for the first time and and kind of finding his voice in in the comedy world, which is I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a distinct voice, but it's something that um, it'll it'll come back later in his career. And this was part yeah. of the attempt to uh, make more of a star of uh, Cloris Leachman, yeah. who uh, after her acclaimed performance in the Last Picture Show. Uh, specialized mostly in comedies, particularly uh, in Young Frankenstein with Mel Brooks. And so she's trying to reestablish herself here as kind of a leading actress uh, who can be the sexy ro- romantic lead. You know, I, I don't know that it fully succeeds on that level, which maybe she realized, too, as she went uh, right back to uh, to comedy after this. But yeah, I agree with Colin. I think, you know, as opposed to when, uh, you know, kind of a, a dreary Hollywood movie that's done the same things over and over again and seems tired of itself, here's a movie that may not be polished and may not, you know, have all the great qualities of cinema, but damn, everyone's just having fun, mm-hmm. and, and the audience has that fun, too. And a little bit of trivia, uh, if you keep your eyes open for Dennis Quaid, this is his first role and as a bellhop. So, oh, right. It's <laughs> a little walk-on, but it's his very first on-screen role. Now, Al, there was a third film in, in the Corman trilogy that I have not had a chance to see, but I guess you two have. I was lucky to see this, this third film uh, called Fighting Mad, uh, made in 1976. If I could give a plot synopsis from it, the best way I feel is, in, uh, as a trailer will put it, Peter Fonda is fighting mad. <laughs> He's a guy who comes back to his family farm, which is being threatened by local um, developers of the coal mining that's enroaching on their territory. And if you've seen any other movie like that, (laughs) you know exactly the beats that what what happens in the movie. You know know who gets killed, who wants to have revenge, Mm -hmm. and so on. That part is is not that notable. (laughs) Yeah. However, this is not a film where you can say, well, if you see one such film, you've seen it all. In fact, there's been no such film that's been done like this. And the reason why is because Demi puts in, like, just these creative, weird touches in almost every sequence. Like, 
<laughs> I I was really weirded out at the beginning of this film by like, whoa, why is he doing that? Why is this character here? But then when one of the thugs who's menacing the family, spoiler alert, huh, <laughs> he has this waxy Raleigh Fingers mustache. When I under when I finally got this part of uh Demi, the dude is a hipster, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's a hipster. He's a guy who like looks and fi- looks at the culture and he finds these really weird things and he like mm-hmm. highlights it or brings it to the brings it to the foreground. And it's not the um quote unquote evil hipster style in the sense that like he's doing this to promote himself or to go, oh look at look at the exotic knowledge that I have. Right. But it's more like, wow, hey, isn't this weird? Isn't this scene that you've seen hundreds of times before? Like, how can we make this interesting? That's not even how we can make this interesting, but what if this happened? Yeah. What if this happened? Like, there's a car chase uh, that happens in the movie. And, but unlike, you, unlike the usual car chase, the car is chasing a motorcycle, but the motorcycle has a small child on the front of it. <laughs> and then... Part of the car chase involves a car pulling into the wrong house, and then some lady in a big yellow blouse takes an axe to the front hood of the car. <laughs> she just comes out with a she's a nice bit lady, and she just comes out with an axe. <laughs> yeah, I mean these are kind of characters that, um, yeah, that, that will do that sort of thing in this kind of movie. Like this is a film about you know these land developers who are trying to take over this land that uh, where Peter Fonda and his family live. And these guys are not shy about causing a huge avalanche with boulders that come crashing through a farmhouse while a family is inside it. You That's know? right. It Literally doesn't matter. Have boulders going through a house. That's yeah, right. Just to, just to make a point. And but this is a film that um, doesn't feel like it, it's definitely the oddball of the three. It doesn't feel like a Cor- Roger Corman produced product. Uh, there's a real director sensibility at work. And in fact, it actually, more often than not, it feels more like a John Sayles film. Hmm. Um, oh, and interesting. it has like a real authentic feel of an American indie, uh, when you watch it. So I, and so I think this is where, where Demi is on his way towards making more serious films, which, uh, kind of leads us to the next couple of movies that he made. And you turn my The next uh, next film of his, Handled with Care, in uh, 1977, which I hadn't had a chance to see, but uh, uh, Colin, you did have a chance to? Yeah, it also goes by the name Citizens Band, and B-A-N-D. It's a multi-character, multi-story piece, but it all centers around these uh, CB radio enthusiasts, which was you know, a big communication thing back in the late 70s, mid to late 70s. And this is a, a film that's, it stars Paul Lamatt as this, uh, CB coordinator and CB radio coordinator. And, uh, Roberts Blossom plays his father, who's, uh, um, who's kind of losing it a little bit. And Charles Napier is this trucker who has <laughs> multiple girlfriends and wives and, um, and, one of the women he goes to see has a you know a, her own CB thing going, and it's uh, written by Paul Brickman, who wrote uh, and directed Risky Business and uh, Men Don't Leave, and those are the only two films he made. But wow. uh, so this is kind of a, an interesting thing, an uh, interesting little footnote or, or thing for his career too. Uh, directed by the DP was Jordan Cronenweth, uh, who's 
you know, very well-established DP on that. And it's interesting in that it's, again, like Fighting Mad, it kind of takes place in a rural area. I mean, Demi really likes those rural areas and, and those kind of off-the-beaten-path uh, locations. And he'll come back to that a couple films later, uh, again, with Paul Lamatt. Um, this is, it's kind of a comedy. It's kind of a drama. Um, like, I think like a lot of what Demi does is he, he knows how to kind of mix those two. So you're not quite sure what it is. And, um, and it's, it, it's interesting to watch in that it, it sort of pre dates the internet and just how many voices are out there on the internet. It's like the CB broadcasters. There are like there are good ones and there are bad ones. And Paul Lamatt just finally gets frustrated and tries to uh, do what he can, like almost uh, like to police the CB radio community, huh. much much of the same way the FCC does. So it's kind of weird. Like, should I be rooting for this guy? Because that's kind of like rooting for the FCC, isn't it? But um, so it there's so watching it today, there's kind of this. Uh, you're not quite sure if we should root for him or not. Um, and, but the funnier stuff involves Charles Napier as this womanizing trucker who finally just gets caught by all three of his mistresses and girlfriends and wives and they all confront him and they're like, they all have this, they all have it out in this trailer and, uh, <laughs> I love that he orders a pizza during the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> I want to, yeah. I want to put a quick tangent that like, that way before Twin Peaks, like one of the things that happens in Fighting Mad is that when the, a sheriff tries to break up a fight, before he does that, he actually has a comment upon the quality of the coffee that's being delivered. Yeah. To him. <laughs> right? Yeah. And and Charles Napier will will go on to have a little role in just about every single Jonathan Demi movie uh, that's not a concert. Pretty much, I think. Um, I, I would have to look this up, but the only one that comes to mind that I don't think he was in was Beloved. Um, I'll, that I'll would have been th- a stretch even for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tracy Walter might get landed a role in That's it. That's true. Um, but I don't think Charles Napier. But I'll, I'll look that up at some point today before we leave here. So please don't write to us if I got that. <laughs> hey, um, do, do you guys know why Napier was – he was such a fan of Napier or uh, – I don't know the relationship. I mean, I really, I wish I knew more about like why Jonathan Demi, he, he casts, you know, a lot of the same character actors in his films. And, uh, I'm sure that he's just a devoted, you know, wonderful friend to have that will do that. And Roger Corman himself. Roger is, Corman, uh, sure. A cameo in just about every film, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Every Demi film, you mean? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. I just think because Charles Napier is such a distinct gentleman, just a, just a, you know, just a, a really distinct look and sound to him that, you know, why would you not put him in a film? Find right. a role for this guy. You know, he's so interesting. Well, he's one of, uh, to me, he's kind of one of these guys who just is a walking icon of like this rock jaw. Yeah. Like, sergeant character that you would have seen like in hundreds of movies from the forties. Yeah. I mean, he'd be one of those right. guys out in the background. Yeah. Just, you need a tough guy. You get Charles Napier, of course. So there, so with this movie, and then he makes um, a, a sort of an homage to Hitchcock called Last Embrace with Roy Scheider. There is no reason for you to hide. It's so hard for me staying here all alone.
this is kind of a transitional period for Jonathan Demme, and it would last a, a, over the course of a few films. And this is a, I actually just saw this for the first time recently. So this is um, I this is a film that I had to really track down and, and find him. And I'm glad I did because it's it's interesting that he would choose to do a sort of Hitchcock a straightforward Hitchcockian thriller. Um, and it's got some, it, some things uh, about it are, are good. Some things about it are really cheesy and just don't hold up. But there's, but at this point, it's his most stylistic film, I think. Um, he's using, he's trying things with the camera now. They're long dolly shots. They're steady cam. They're slow motion. And so he's trying all these things that he hasn't tried yet and, and just trying them on, just like trying on a new suit and seeing what he likes. Yeah, he's like, right, he goes and takes Hitchcockian elements and themes. Hitchcock, if you study him and you look at the kind of camera moves and uh, suspense scenes that he does, I mean, that's kind of a pretty Mm -hmm. good film school, wouldn't you think? People who are Hitchcock fans, who are fans of the different ki- his different kinds of movies, I think they'll find a lot to like in The Last Embrace, because mm-hmm. he does some nice quotations through Vertigo, um, some, uh, even a quite a small reference out to the birds manages to make its, uh, make its appearance. Um, some strangers on the train action happens. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are a lot of Hitchcock tropes in there. Like, yeah, like you said, the train and cat metaphors. Um, you know, the, a conflict taking place at a, at a recognizable monument, mm-hmm. uh, which this film does. Uh, the final scene takes place at Niagara Falls. Um, and, uh, and you got, again, uh, John Glover with a bad mustache. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and, but it's not, and it's not like Brian De Palma, which is kind of more like, almost borderline obnoxious uh, homages to, to Hitchcock, you know, where it's so obvious. Um, not that I have anything against Brian De Palma, really, I don't. But um, but this is just kind of a, a, a more subdued De Palma film, almost. Mm-hmm. I would, by way of comparison, Demi does this these moments in a way that puts a spin on that moves it, like, in, 90, in a 90-degree direction. To just one example... There's a point, and there's a suspenseful sequence on a train where, like, some people he wants to, where you want to see if someone is hiding behind a newspaper, trying to hide their face. But it starts when, when the main character, played by Roy Scheider, looks back and he sees 15 people all put their papers up at once. <laughs> so taking a suspenseful sequence, which is still suspenseful, into a humorous one. And there is a take of the melancholy of Vertigo's ending that is done in an... It's inverted. It's given a new kind of level by by the characters from which it ha- from which it happens. So he's taking these things, and, and he is airlifting certain sequences wholesale, uh, but he is doing this in a way to go and let you look at it a little differently. So that's why I would place it a little more value than the, than the Palma for me. Mm-hmm. One other thing I'd want to point out about the Last of Us that I really like is that it is a, a collaboration in a way between Roy Scheider as the as an agent uh, uh, character, and I have to point out Scheider does great agent. He is so mm-hmm. great as like a as like a cop, and a, uh, an assassin kind of figure. Even his cameo in Marathon Man, I I really <laughs> he's able to make a really effective impression on that, and. 
and John Glover, as you mentioned, Colin, he's in the movie, and they were paired all again in a great, great John Frankenheimer film called Fifty Two Pickup that I would unequivocally recommend, which is a nice, dirty, dark, twisted, noirish kind of story. And Glover cannot be more different than his fussy <laughs> professor <laughs> character in in The Last Embrace. He does a camera move, which is kind of unique to Demi, but makes, I think, its first appearance. I haven't, having not seen Caged Heat, but when there's a scene where Roy Scheider sees someone approach, and it's filmed with him directly facing the camera Mm -hmm. and saying, hello. This is a kind of motif that Demi does, and it obviously has a very simple meaning here as he's addressing something, but... He seems to be use it more and more often in his film, so we just keep keeping an eye out for that. So now that he um, has like worked out like some uh, like a tool set of different kind of director and styles, and tried out different like kinds of movies and tones and themes, he um, then puts out like I think uh, one of his signature works, which kind of show at least like where his sensibility flows all the way through with um, Melvin and Howard from uh, 1980. You may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. You may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, This is very much uh, a departure for Demi. It uh, stars Paul Lamatt as uh, blue-collar everyman uh, Melvin, and Howard is played by Jason Robards and maybe none other than Howard Hughes, who uh, Melvin uh, finds after a motorcycle accident uh, in the desert and drives him to Vegas, where they they form a bond that... uh, will eventually make national news uh, after Hughes dies and Melvin finds a will. Yeah, which is a wi- ironic since uh, Melvin does not really come across as a willful person before this <laughs> happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- this was very acclaimed uh, at the time. Uh, it was uh, especially uh, Mary Steenburgen's uh, role as uh, as Melvin's wife. She actually won, won an Oscar for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Bull Goldman won uh, the Academy Award for Best Screenplay as well for this film. So this is where Demi's uh, starts to like Last Embrace just didn't catch fire. Just people didn't go see it, so it didn't really like it. Didn't hurt his career. Didn't help it either. Uh, but now with Melvin and Howard, he is an established director. He's more, um, he's 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 getting more respectability, I guess, for lack of a better word. And it's a really interesting film. I mean, it's a really, uh, I, I think, uh, the the screenplay is just, I think, really beautifully structured in in a way that isn't obvious. Like the if you made this film today, you'd take the whole second, like the whole middle hour, and you'd condense it to like. 10, 15 minutes today. And then the rest of the film would be about the will and Howard Hughes. And did he really give you the money? And, or did he really, you know, was that really Howard Hughes? Uh, but this film, it starts, it's a 10 minutes of, uh, Melvin and Howard in the truck together, getting to know each other and sort of, um, forming a bond. And then he drops Howard off and then that's it. 
And then we spend the next hour with Melvin Dumar and uh, played by Paul Lamat again from uh, Citizens Band, Handle with Care. And um, and again, Paul Lamat is playing a guy who is just trying to make ends meet. He's doing everything he can. He's a really likable uh, but kind of naive guy, and but somewhat optimistic. But uh, you know, wants to be considered street smart, but maybe he isn't really. No. Um, but uh, he's not even milk smart. Well, but but he's but he, uh, but he's not like played as a dummy either. You know, he, he's not. Um, I, I I think there's a, there's a sweetness to his to 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 Melvin, which and is, he's not oblivious either. He's he's aware of his own essential doltishness. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then and then it's not until like so he goes so he has his ups and downs with his wife ex-wife mary steenburgen and they get remarried they have a kid together and then there there's all this other sort of push and pull with this relationship until it eventually dissolves and then like 15 minutes 15 maybe 20 minutes before the movie ends then we get back to the hair the the howard hughes thing and you know was there a will and was there uh, you know is it the real will and did you really meet him or was it really howard hughes and um, and I just think I just loved that, that structure uh, for the film uh, to get us really into M- Melvin's life and really um, put it in context so that it, there's more of a tragedy to it. You're uh, very right that like that middle section is something that a conventional film would try to put as a montage. Yeah, It'd be something that'd be over and done within ten minutes. And instead, I kind of think that's the dramatic heart of the film. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's really about Melvin. And so, you know, I think a lot of this film depends on uh, how you take Paul Lamatt's performance, because he is playing very wide-eyed, naive, and, you know, it it almost reminded me a a little bit of uh, of Amelie, just kind of this uh, character Hmm. who is... uh, kind of walking through life so on his own wavelength and you know i had i had uh, mixed reactions as far as there were certain moments where i did relate and did find uh melvin uh, a, a character worth following through all this worth rooting for in this kind of class uh warfare situation of trying to make uh ends meet but then then there are some moments that where you know he uh Gets comes into some money and buys a car and a boat out of nowhere, and it's right. like, well, though maybe some, <laughs> maybe some of this is going a little too far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's uh, it it doesn't quite cross the threshold of say Richard Dreyfus's antics in Close Encounters of the Third Kind in terms of stuff that'll endear you to your family, you know, <laughs> something which is like kind of on the mind on this film's mind in a similar way. Um, and maybe a similar in a way to many 70s films, because to me, the film is working on a border between like being a kind of fable, being with Melvin being a little bit of a wide-eyed innocent who does impulsive things, and being a film that's trying to teach his social setting seriously. Like when he makes arguments about being milkman of the month. Like the subject sounds silly, mm-hmm. but but the actual details of how much he needs to go and like like pay to keep his truck operating and how that's going to cut into his cut into his profits mm-hmm. that is a serious detail that's presented in a serious kind of way. 
what, while you're and while you're thinking of that though, he has there's a sequence where there's a party and the uh, the company party, and he goes up and picks up a guitar and then he plays this song, which on the one hand has this kind of um, Elvis movie quality to it, where it's like he's playing and his lyrics are way too good for something that a guy like Melvin would have been able to come up with, but they are so tied in to the details of his hard scrabble life mm-hmm. and the different sacrifices he has to do just to like not even stay ahead, but to keep from falling more behind. So it has this kind of like 70s level neorealism in a kind of... Uh, Fable rapper, or maybe they're coexisting in a kind of way. You guys see that? Yeah, I got. I yeah. I mean, I was I was thinking more about um, what you were saying about his his you know, being the milkman of the year is such a a um, one of the things I like themes I like about this movie is that theme of you know money equals self esteem, mm-hmm. and it's that sort of. Yeah, being milkman of the month or whatever, uh, it, it's as much about his own sense of self worth as it is about you know just having a paycheck. Yeah, and, and the right. film like does a really nice job. I feel on like just kind of showing in a very emphatic way how threadbare mm. these like trappings of success can be. Yeah, like just. When when Paul Lamette continues his like CB techniques by being his captain in his boat, and then it cuts to the boat is sitting in his dirty alley of his house yeah. as he's watching <laughs> traffic go by. <laughs> I it, I mean it really highlights that. But then also there's a point halfway through where they want, go on a game show, and the game mm-hmm. show is presented in this such a cheesy manner that that even like the even the victory feels a little you know hollow or like you're left wanting even though they did win it's it's a really interesting touch that uh sorry yeah that um that demi does here in that scene and that he has paul lamatt sitting next to a disgruntled looking native american oh right it's just it just (laughs) has this disgruntled look on his face the whole time doesn't say anything doesn't acknowledge it just well he does say one thing oh a different door than he does and he gets it right yeah right Sorry, right, because they've been watching this uh, this game show, which is kind of a, a mixture of the Gong Show and uh, and The Price Is Right, and uh, saying, "Well, we know, of course, you need to choose door number three or something like that." Right, and like so a, let's make a deal from the ultimate deal maker. Right, and so when when his his wife is on the show, that I, I, is really comes across uh, showing the vulgarity. Of uh, the idea of the, the 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 quick the quick buck, you know, get rich quick without without work uh, ethic. That you know, it's 1980. We're about to head into the the Reagan years, and I think uh, Demi is definitely trying to say something about uh, you know how we view uh, people who are struggling. And the idea on the work ethic leads to like a really fun facet of Steen Burgeon's character. I mean, I I would I would love it if you guys would be able to explain if or if you would have an idea as to why she won the Oscar for the the role. I mean, I found it a little caricaturish, but it was an interesting caricature because while to me, um, Melvin struggles. And sometimes he does the wrong thing, but he cont- keeps struggling. I think he even makes a comment in the movie, oh, I'm, you just got to keep plugging on, honey. But Steenburgen continually 
like does more and more degrading things, and then as soon as someone points out, hey, you know what, you really shouldn't be doing that, she immediately up and quits. Not once, but twice. Right. <laughs> and the second time, her clothes are like completely off, <laughs> and uh, in a particular kind of st- in a role where she actually is not playing a stripper, but the clothes completely come off, and she's uh, nonplussed as she storms off. <laughs> so, kind of like highlights. Her being kind of oblivious to her own, you know, degrade- degradation. Yeah, she's an interesting, quirky character, but I, I can't for the life of me think why she got an Oscar for that. I, I honestly can't either. I'd have to look at the competition and see what she was up against, and maybe it was just a really weak year. But yeah, I, the, I, I don't want to expound too much on it because I really can't <laughs> think. I, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful performance, <laughs> and Mary Steenburgen is, is a terrific actress, and I always think she does great work. And, uh, but, um, but yeah, it, it didn't, it didn't floor me when I watched it this last time. But then again, this was, uh, 37 years ago, 38 years ago, or something yeah. like that. And so, I don't know. I'd- now we should mention, uh, Jason Robards is, uh, a small but vital role mm-hmm. as, uh, probably Howard Hughes. Uh, although he, he's an older Howard Hughes than we've, uh, we saw in The Aviator, uh, and yeah. he's, uh, disheveled uh, a mess and and looks more like a bum than Howard Hughes and a Robards who is just always excellent mm-hmm. uh continues to be excellent here playing uh both the character playing it both ways where you could just as easily believe he's you know some bum off the street or you could believe he's an eccentric uh, billionaire his presence is very, very welcome. He has this kind of level of charisma and just a, just general authority. Even if he was like just a de- decrepit individual, he's someone that's notable right when you see him, you know? I mean, it would have been an interesting comparison if, say, Charles Napier got into that car in the beginning of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say really quick, oh, Jason, sure. Jason Robards was nominated for this role, but he did not win. Hmm. So that's a that's a he's not really a, in the movie a whole lot. So that he made so it's, he made quite an impression. Yeah, you don't forget his stuff. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. That's for to be sure. This leads to his next film, uh, which is uh, Swing Shift. And this is where he's making his, this is kind of the biggest production he's ever had. It's a period piece, takes place in, uh, during World War II. It's a, it's a, an ensemble drama, uh, with, about, uh, women who went to work in the, in the, uh, in the factories while, the, while their husbands went off to war. And you got, uh, Goldie Hawn and Christine Lottie and Holly Hunter in an early role. Uh, Fred Ward is in this film, uh, Ed Harris, and uh, uh, Kurt Russell. And um, and it's meant to be this ensemble piece, uh, multiple storylines, uh, multiple characters, very Altman-esque. And... Um, and it, it's and, and Warner Brothers, you know, putting up a lot of money for it, and they're looking at it as an awards tentpole release. But what happened was... Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell met on the set of that film, and Kurt uh, Goldie Hawn was a uh, also a producer on the film, so she had some say in what kind of film it was going to be. And so when her relationship started with Kurt Russell, suddenly this, her and the, I'm not to do, sure what degree she had the influence or if the studio had the influence or what, but suddenly the film got taken away from Demi, and uh, he had already assembled his cut of the film 
And then Warner Brothers said, we need to make this more about Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn and less of an ensemble piece. And so there were rewrites and reshoots. And uh, so what you're seeing, what's out there now is a compromised film, unfortunately. And it was, you know, the Demi's first and I think probably last uh, conflict with the studio to this degree. And um, there is a director's cut out there on VHS. It's been floating around over the decades. Uh, some film critics have it. I do not. Uh, but I would, I'm dying to find it. <laughs> if there's anybody listening out there who can give me a lead to the, to the director's cut of Swing Shift, find me on Facebook and instant message me because I want to find this thing. <laughs> Is there any indication that this might eventually see the light of day? I don't think so. I mean, I, I feel like it would have seen it by now. I mean, especially now that Demi has passed away. Um, I don't think really probably Goldie Hawn doesn't really want to deal with that. Um, I, I can't imagine what would... Pro and, and it's not oh, like one of Warner Brothers' most well-known films. They kind of dropped the ball as far as... Uh, well, not that completely dropped the ball, but they didn't promote it the way they were originally going to at Oscar time. They released it in the spring and just kind of let it die at a quick death. Although Christine Lottie was nominated. Hmm. Um, so her performance got the most attention in the film, but the, it got kind of a lukewarm response from everybody. The thing about Demi is that is consistent through his career is that he is really good at... He, he's, a, he's a male director who loves making movies about women. And makes really good movies about women. A lot of his films are female-centric and female-focused. And uh, Swing Shift was going to be one of those kinds of films. It was going to be a lot about the relationship between Goldie Hawn and Christine Lottie. These two women whose husbands are off to war. And you know, they, they form this friendship. And, um, and, and that's, that's what, that's what that, that was the movie everybody agreed to make. Uh, but then, you know, they... She met Kurt Russell, and then, well, there, well, there you go. So it seems so, like maybe the conventional romance kind of got a little shoehorned and imposed yeah. it, akin to maybe, in its ultimate example, the Love Conquers All ending of Brazil. Exactly, yeah, you're watching the Love Conquers All uh, version right now, but it's not as bad. <laughs> maybe that's a little harsh, because that's a terrible, terrible cut of a great film. <laughs> this is not a terrible film, okay. by any stretch. Um, it's just not Jonathan Demme's film. Um but and so uh, while Demi was dealing with the stress of this, and he has a great story, by the way, uh, of on, on the set of this film, he was putting together "Stop Making Sense." He went and saw Talking Heads do this concert film, and, or do this concert, and thought this would make a great film. And he talked to the band and talked to David Byrne and, and to convince them that he would shoot it a, a certain way and it would be great. And so he was on his way to doing that as kind of a side project while dealing with the stress of having to do reshoots and recuts of this film. And um, so uh, he, so one day when he had to go and, and, and uh, he, one night when he was going to go and film Stop Making Sense, one of the three or four performances he was going to film, um, he had to instead reshoot this scene for, that he didn't want to do. And he, he just didn't, eh, you know, it's like, oh, God, I can't film this concert tonight because i got to reshoot this scene that I don't want to reshoot. This sucks. And um, so they got a, he got a call from the studio or he got a call from somebody on the set and saying, uh, Ed Harris has a, 
headache. He can't come in. Um, he can't do the scene. And uh, so he rushed out to his car and just like frankly was like, okay, I got to get to that concert so we can we can actually do this. And he gets in the car and sitting in the passenger seat of his car is Ed Harris. No. And Ed Harris is like, all right, let's rock. Let's go. Let's go to the concert. Come on. So, <laughs> so Ed Harris was in his corner like, yeah, this sucks. Let's go to a concert. We don't want to reshoot this. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so... The concept of now, now I have the concept in my head, Colin, of, of Mr. like Snowpiercer slash, uh, the head guy from the Abyss attending the Talking Heads concert. That's yeah, right. Kind of awesome. <laughs> right, exactly. Especially considering the concert it was. Concert films were kind of few and far between at the time. Um, there, you know, of course, there was the Last Waltz was probably and, and Woodstock are probably the two most famous at that up and up to that point. Uh, Rolling Stones had, I think, a couple concert films. Pink Floyd, uh, I think, may have had one too. Um, but this is the one that uh, I mean, really, I mean, you couldn't pick a better concert to do a concert film for. It's so cinematic, and Demi really saw the possibilities as he watched the show like how this could work as a film uh, because the concert itself is structured in a way much like a film there's a first act and a second act and a third act and those acts are very different from each other it's not your typical concert what you know made up of greatest hits and the lead singer taking over the whole show and being the whole show although david byrne is an, an is a captivating presence throughout the whole thing and it starts with him uh, solo with a acoustic guitar and a radio playing a drum beat. And on the surface, I mean, you just look at it. Well, it's a concert film. Very cool. He, you know, but there is, I think, an underlying story going on in the concert itself that David Byrne, uh, that, uh, that he conceptualized. Oh, um, so the, the, so, the, the, was the album like also had, cause the album came first, right? This isn't a, like a complete collaboration. Well, I mean, there is the the tour was in support of the Talking Heads album "Speaking in Tongues," which had the hit song "Burning Down the House" on it, mm-hmm. and uh, this was their fifth album, I believe. And so they had a big hit; they had a big radio hit, and they had had a couple few hits before that, of course. But they were kind of like an art rock band, you know. They weren't getting a whole lot of mainstream attention, mostly. You know, they were kind of on the they were kind of in the same realm as you know, I guess uh, Elvis Costello, um, or New Wave, New Wave. Yeah, yeah there you mm-hmm. go. So the the album isn't really conceived as anything. Connected. It doesn't have an overarching concept. Not really. No, okay. it's it's a collection of songs. Most Talking Heads albums are like that. They're not. There's not an overarching concept to, mm-hmm. to them. Um, but this one. So this is. You know, they they produced the album. They didn't have Brian Eno this time. They produced it themselves. So there's not like a, a, you, it's not like you need to know this album to know the show or anything like that. The idea behind the concert was, you know, David Byrne comes out on this 
bare stage. You know, you you go into the theater and you see this empty stage, and you think, "Where is? What are they going to put the instruments? There's no instruments. What are they going to do? What, mm-hmm. What's going on here? Are we at the right show?" Right. I don't and even think they have a backdrop. You no, know, no backdrop. The plumbing and the electricity yeah. on the back wall. Yeah, it's like it's a bare stage that nobody's touched in a long time. And then David Byrne walks out with a radio and a, an acoustic guitar, and he performs "Psycho Killer." And the lyric in that is, "I'm tense and nervous. I can't relax." And he looks very, and he gives a very kind of tense and nervous performance while he's singing it. And then Tina Weymouth, the bass player, comes out and joins him, and they play a beautiful lullaby called Heaven. And then Jerry Harrison comes out, and they do, um, I think, not Slippery People, what's the third song on there? Um, uh, thank, uh, thank you, you for, for sending, sending me an angel. angel. Yeah, thank you for sending yeah. me an angel. And then Chris Franz comes out, and they do a song, and it's the only time in the show where it's just the four talking heads on stage. It's one song where it's just the four of them. And then Hmm. the backdrop comes down, and then more uh, instruments are brought in, more uh, synthesizers and drum kits and all kinds of things, and uh, and backup singers. And every backup performer in it is African-American. And I don't know if that's by design or not, but I think what's going on in this sort of narrative is about it there is kind of a nice race relation going on uh on stage here and it's based and you can see david byrne starting to loosen up and starting to get more physical with his performance until he is like just unstop uh, giving an unstoppable physical performance and um huh right. you talk about loosening up but then there's a scene that's kind of like to the extent when people see a single image of Stop Making Sense, it's like, I think the first song right after the encore, where David Byrne is emerging from shadows wearing a gigantic suit. Yeah. One that's something <laughs> like six or seven times bigger than it should for him. Right. But also, during the course of the song he's singing, he does this r- thing that I always thought was just explicably weird for weirdness's sake where he's wiggling his legs in a way that causes the folds of the suit to look like his legs are entirely made out of rubber but in the context of how you described it colin that make actually makes perfect thematic sense he's literally loosening up in front of your eyes right and it happens earlier in the show with burning down the house up until then, the band, as you mentioned, Colin, is just building and building. And then with Burning Down the House, it becomes a complete party. Yeah. But then it, it goes beyond that with uh, the next number, uh, Life During Wartime, where David Byrne actually begins to jog around the stage. And the physicality of, of Byrne's performance is absolutely amazing. I mean, everyone in the band, the musicians, everyone is is in top form. But uh, Byrne is this unique front man that does things that you're not used to seeing in rock concerts. And that must have been amazing in just the context of the Talking Heads. But it's even more amazing in the way that Demi films this, this movie because every single number has a different concept. Mm-hmm. You've got a scene where uh, David Byrne is dancing with a lamp. 
another one where uh, that that's uh, purely cinematic uh, for a song called uh, "Swamp," where you see him literally rising uh, from the abyss to 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 where his head fills the frame as the song begins, and this is something that would not even register on stage for the audience, but registers in the concert. Because it's not just a, a filmed concert, it's a film. And I think this reaches the apex in, uh, in the next number, which is uh, What a Day It Was, where lights are placed at the very, at the bottom of the stage under uh, the performers. And the result is that these shadows start making these strange, bizarre masks on all the uh, performers from uh, Burn to the backup singers. And, you know, th- this, this bit of lighting combined with the music uh, creates uh, this amazingly cinematic effect. And if I remember correctly, it, the lights also cause the shadows behind them on the backdrop to attain these, like, enormous stature. Right, and you don't see that right away. You you start by just seeing how the faces are masked and how they're masked differently for each performer. But then, yes, then it becomes this whole nother show as you expand to see the shadows on the wall. That's right. I mean, in I think this is Demi's greatest achievement by a long shot because there's so many things on this movie that make it to me, a singular achievement. Something that's nothing has really equaled, partly because no concert film or film in general has tried to do the kind of things that this is doing. Well, Colin briefly mentioned The Last Waltz, which which, which should be given some credit as the first concert film that was not just put a camera and record the show, but conceived as a film with a full camera crew angle where, where the angles of the filmmakers and the cameras are affecting what's on stage. And, and as great as the last waltz is though, I've got to say, I, I agree with you. I think this, this does it better. This is, uh, has the reputation. I think it's well-deserved as the best concert film ever made. Yeah. And I, and I think no, I mean, that is due in no small part to, uh, Jordan Cronenworth, the cinematographer who I mentioned earlier. This is the guy who shot Blade Runner and Altered States. And this is a guy who has a real visual sensibility. And a lot of the stuff that you see in Stop Making Sense, like the part you mentioned, Brad, uh, during Swamp when David Byrne sort of rises into the frame. I mean, that stuff was carefully planned by ahead of time by, by Demi and, and, and Cronenweth and the camera people, saying you got to make sure that the camera pans till you get to David Byrne at this point. He's going to rise up into the frame. Make sure you get that. So there's a lot of planning that goes on, that went on into this. That, that um, It's not accidental, but it is brilliant. I mean, it, it is... It is uh, it is what makes it a great film, and I think I agree with you, uh, Al, that this is. This, I mean, this is my favorite Jonathan Demme film for many reasons. Uh, it 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 changed the way not only how I listen to music, but how I look at it. It's like I can I learned a lot about musicianship when I watched this film. I watched it constantly through high school. <laughs> it was one of those films. I mean, I think I've probably seen this film more than any other film in my life, and. Um, I, I think it's possible. 
uh, working at a video store, it makes great background noise. So I count those viewings as, sure. <laughs> as times that I've right. watched sure. it. And, and if, you get it, if you get a chance, see it on the big screen. Absolutely. Because when, when I've been with, with an audience in a theater, it turns into a dance party. People just get up, go to the screen, a, a, and start dancing because the energy that's combined by the band and the filmmaking is infectious. Mm-hmm. This movie is a really great demi palate cleanser. If you've seen a like as the court as the movies we've watched during the for uh, preparation for this podcast, I was always thinking in the back of my head: if I see a really bad demi before recording, like let's pop in, stop making sense, and you cannot help but feel good. Yeah. In uh, as a result, and. There's a level of dimensionality that real and context that really needs to be brought in, I feel, on that. Because, like you said, Brett, when you he- see it in front of a crowd, your people are singing along, they're dancing. Mm-hmm. You're, it's rousing and energizing and, and inspirational as like the best rock concerts can be. But it's done with a band that is no one's first or second choice when you say the word rock band. Mm. I find it just very, it's a very unconventional band with a phenomenally unconventional uh, singer who, if anything, has some sort of weird uh, underground charisma to him. <laughs> and yet, like, you know, is I find it just really amazing that this, that the best concert experience to get the sense of, how rock music could be is not done by the Stones or mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Um, the Who or the bands that people quote unquote expect to be give you the rock star experience. Yeah, I mean, and Cronenweth uh, would go on to shoot U2's concert film Rattle and Hum, and they didn't do it. Uh, you know, they couldn't achieve what Talking Heads achieved, and they're more considered a rock band than Talking Heads. Uh, yeah. To make your point, I also think there's a great. This is a great example of. Not just how to shoot a concert film, but how to edit it. This was edited by Lisa Day, who uh, would go on to edit more uh, uh, more concert films and do it in a way that is very uh, minimal. And this was made in 1984. And by this time, I mean there were a lot of there was a lot of hyper editing going on with concert films. MTV, MTV, right? Uh, HBO had a David Bowie concert special at that time that was all cut to hell. And uh, so Demi just wanted to, like, get away from those conventions as much as possible and just let the band's energy make d- dictate the cuts without, having, without going overboard on it. Yeah, this is the best edited concert film by far. And by, I will explain by pointing out why I hate sports movies. <laughs> but bear with me. The reason I hate most sports movies is because when you get to the ending sequence, it shows the sports conflict going on, the competitions going on in its last minute, and then it cuts to, like, the girlfriend in the stands, it cuts to the friends of the main character at the local bar, it, uh, it cuts to the parents watching on a small TV, and that is all bullshit because when you watch a sporting event, you don't care about any of these things. The sport event should go and, like, provide its own drama, and it provides its own level of compelling nature, or it should do that. And if you're, if you're cutting away to this stuff that no one actually involved in a great sporting event or watching a great sporting event is experiencing, 
then you're cheapening it. You might as well put in a laugh track to it. In the same way, so many concert films are like done either very statically by just showing the band in a, like a full frame or every so often cutting to one or more instruments when someone does a solo, say. Very standard. Or the MTV is even worse, where it's just, it's the equivalent of doing shaky camp for a rock show. Mm -hmm. Like, oh no, I don't trust, and I'm not even bothering to see what the band is doing. Let's just, just cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. It's, mm -hmm. it's the, um, it is the editing version of like how in horror movies you just make a loud noise and have something jump from off screen. It makes a cheap jolt and not giving any content to what the music is actually supposed to do in terms of driving people to be inspired and rocking out. Stop making sense to me does cutting just right. Mm -hmm. Because for one thing, until the, near the end of the movie, you do not see the audience. That yeah. ironically starts making sense because mm -hmm. you are because when you're watching a show, you're not looking at your fellow audience members. Right. Yeah. You're concentrating on what's on screen, and the movie does a spectacular job to me of just focusing the way that you would focus on a show. Sometimes you would have focus on David Byrne exclusively. Sometimes you would see the band behaving, and you would your attention would be cut between them sometimes some uh backup singer or like bernie warrell does a great keyboard turn in it and you would focus on him when he's doing things and the camera would ever so slightly curve in as just to evoke when you yourself as an audience member and this is a technique that he would go on to apply to his narrative films as well. Demi is amazing at making the screen a democracy, at, at, at yes. not having such focus on just the leads, and, and but also giving the smaller roles time to shine, just like you see in, uh, in, in the, the Talking Heads and in their backup singers and, and horn players and keyboards, they're all given, like you say, these moments of importance. And it only makes for a better show. And it doesn't take anything away from David Byrne, who's still dynamic, but not the only person we're watching. And that mm -hmm. seems to kind of be part of the theme to what your point, Colin, was that he is loosening up or finding that there's more people to which he can... Um, accommodate or interact with as he's on stage. Obviously, he starts off himself, but I, but I think like two thirds of the way through, he does a really great kind of duet with a with one of the uh, uh, backup singers. It's a, kind of a dance duet. It's not a yes. not a vocal duet, but uh, yeah, there's definitely it's a really wonderful interplay between him and the and the and the backup singers. Mm -hmm. And and I just also want to point out that like, and this is something, Colin, that you also a point you made about how you can learn so much about like how direction, how movie direction enhances on the performance in this movie on a song-by-song -song basis. There's, um, uh, there's a great movie by Akira Kurosawa, Rauschman, about multiple points of view. And Kurosawa did a brilliant job in it by, show by when you see each character's different perspective on things, they're each filmed in a different way. But here, the direction is different in each song. Like, while being honest to all the individual participants who are playing the song at that moment, sometimes it requires you to get, like, a, a full-frame kind of view. Sometimes it requires you to go really, really close, like the Swamp song that you brought up, Brad. And sometimes it's 
as kinetic and moving around and bouncing across as the song requires. But it fits. It's It manages to be both an outer kind of vision of what this concert's trying to, to say and an equal look at all the participants at the same time. No, this is such an amazing, an amazing film. And I'm, I, and what, what I remember when, about it when it came out was that it, there's a, there was a theater in our, in Chicago called the Fine Arts Theater, which is kind of like the music box of its time. Rest well, in well, peace, not man. Music box, but like the landmark century of its time. It had like multiple art house screens. And Stop Making Sense played there for well over a year. First as a main film and then, but as a midnight show, it stayed there for a long, long time. And uh, they had some stipulations with it, like they couldn't show it on HBO or any other cable channel. It, it would come out on video, and then it would just stay on video. But they couldn't; it wouldn't be shown anywhere uh, on on any cable station. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it has since enjoyed many uh, anniversary releases. Um, it's one of those films that you know keeps popping up every five years with a new print and a new, you know, a brief theatrical run, uh, and people turn up for it because it's it has a reputation of making people dance. Check out this. And so David Byrne would now become kind of a fixture in in Demi's films for and his work for the next several years. In his film Something Wild, which come, came out uh, in 1986, David Byrne contributed the opening song. And there are many little talking heads inside jokes throughout the film Something Wild, if you know where to look. Something Wild is a film where maybe more than any other Demi film, and I think we'll talk about that, it pays to look because... Mm-hmm. This is one, uh, Something Wild is a film where his attention to pointing out interesting details and unexpected characters really comes to the fore for it. Ostensibly, the plot is about a, uh, investment banker type played by Jeff Daniels who every so often wants to do something wild by leaving a restaurant without paying for it. One time he does it, he gets caught by a lady calling herself Lulu, played by Melanie Griffith. She knows, has caught him stealing, and uses this to kind of blackmail him, to have him join her, but, or, but maybe not really. Maybe there's a part of him that wants to go along for the ride. Now, I'm being specifically ambiguous here, because I want to make a point out for people listening, that one of the best things that this movie does is it takes you on a ride to some very unexpected places in this film. uh, You're going to go by the end. You'll be in a completely different location, not just like geographically, but be feeling about the characters in a completely different way. And it's kind of magical how it's not done through like an M night Shyamalan like twist, but just is done. So gradually you won't even notice it's happening Mm -hmm. until you realize, Oh my gosh, what am I falling myself into? I have a kind of a theory on movie. I, I, I think I've mentioned it, how every movie is like two movies mm-hmm. in reality, because the first time you see a movie, unless you've read it on Wikipedia, you don't know what's going to happen. And the second time you see a, the same movie, 
even though obviously it's the movie is the same, your knowledge of how things play out will, cannot help but affect your impression of what that movie will do. The first movie of Something Wild, the less you know about it, is something I would unequivocally recommend because it takes, I think, is very effective at doing just how I described, taking you to a different place, something that very few movies have a chance to do. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. If you have not seen Something Wild, see it. Uh, skip ahead to the podcast, I guess, <laughs> because right. really, I uh, I invited a bunch of people over to watch it. You guys were there, uh, and to, uh, most people had never seen it before. And I insisted in my in my invite to not watch the trailer, and not because there was a big twist at the end. Nothing, it's not like that. It's just the experience of watching something wild is so much better. With if all you know about it is it looks like a quirky comedy that stars Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith. That's all you need to know. C- quirky comedy. Melanie Griffith, Jeff Daniels, that's all you need to know going in. So that's we're going to leave it at that. Uh, for listeners, skip ahead if you have not seen something wild, because we're going to talk about it. Right. Br- br- mm-hmm. uh, Brad, what was your what would be your impression you would tell for audiences? Would you would you recommend this unequivocally as a first viewing? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and as a second viewing. I, I don't uh, think that its uh, change in tone in any way diminishes in a rewatch, because if Stop Making Sense is uh, Demi's most energetic film. Something Wild is his next most energetic mm-hmm. film. And, and I think it's no accident that he was probably still working uh, off those fumes because he's, he's doing, he's, he's working kind of the same territory Scorsese was working on, uh, with After Hours, the kind of everyday schlub who finds himself in over his head, mostly thanks to a beautiful woman who is uh, going to to lead him down uh, darker paths. But Jeff Daniels does something pretty pretty special with his performance here because he fills that role. He does the nerdy bit, but then as the film asks you to believe that he can keep up. If you don't believe that Jeff Daniels' character can handle himself when pushed, even though he seems like he can't, the whole movie falls apart. So so there's a lot of skill here, because if this story isn't handled wonderfully, it just falls apart. Okay, mm-hmm. great. We are, just want to give a fair warning. This is our final non-spoilery yeah. <laughs> thing, and now we're going to start to get into details. Skip ahead about... Ten minutes if you don't want to hear any further details, which I highly rec again, I highly recommend if you have not seen something mild before. Yeah. All right. That being said, I wanna bring I wanna bring up how this the movie movie is superior to After Hours in a particular sense that ties into what you're saying, Brad. After Hours to me is about a guy who's just completely hapless and just has things befall him. But one of the things that Something Wild does kind of cool is is how much is Jeff Daniels responsible mm-hmm. for the things that he does? Yeah, well, the second he gets into that car, right. I mean, you know, and and to to that point that Brad was saying, the key about Jeff Daniels' performance, sort of being the house of cards that keeps this thing uh, up, uh, is also Melanie Griffith. 
I mean, why would anybody get into a car with this woman? Well, look at her. Right. Listen to her. <laughs> look at. I mean, well, who would? Yeah. What guy would resist this what? person? And <laughs> you really need the right actress with the right look and sensibility to make that believable. And I buy it a hundred percent. They worked okay. so hard on this because not only did they cast uh, Melanie Griffith at at her most alluring, but they put her in uh, this black bob wig. And so then they're recalling one of the first great femme fatales of silent film, which is uh, Louise Brooks in uh, 1929's Pandora's Box, who is the ultimate seductress and whose character's name is Lulu which is also oh, the name that okay. uh, Melanie Griffith takes her herself. So they are recalling uh, one of the great, great film seductresses in this. Yeah, it leads mm-hmm. me to a, real, a really quick question on that, because like nowadays we know when you say something or someone is a real Lulu, that means, well, wow, there's a whole lot of stuff about them, right? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if Pandora's box may have been the first one to be the epitome of the <laughs> Lulu. You know? I've never heard that expression before. Is yeah, that a real a, expression? It, yeah, it, really? yeah, it's kind of was a lot more prevalent, I think, in the, around like the 30s and 40s. Oh, you okay, know? okay. And I mean, even think there maybe was a cartoon about a rambunctious little kid called Little Lulu. Okay. You know, and and so I kind of wonder about that Pandora's box uh, uh, might have been the start of that. It also leads me to think, wow, Pandora's box is kind of a pretty interesting tie into something. While in that, it ties into the old Greek myth of Pandora. Who goes mm-hmm. and like you're not supposed to open the box? Don't yep. open the box. Yep. And uh, said box is opened in multiple ways over the course of this movie. But uh, one of the nice things it does is that Jeff Daniels periodically has opportunities to close that box. Mm-hmm. He can leave at multiple times, and at different points he chooses to stay. So it's kind of making a comment upon his character. What what is it about him? And 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 what is and how much is it, and how it treats the, his quote unquote criminal behavior, you know? There's an early scene where he does the, um, um, a sex scene involving some handcuffs. Um, and then said handcuffs actually are used in a completely different and less slash more appropriate way later as he's like being, uh, chained up while, um, uh, another character is menaced in another room. Right. So it's interesting how, it's also interesting how the probably you can make the argument that the most horrific criminal activity is done by him mm-hmm. <laughs> by the end. But we are introduced then to uh, Ray Liotta as Melanie Griffith's actual husband, whereas her and Jeff Daniels are just pretending to be married and they, they meet at this uh, high school reunion. And this is uh, Liotta's first major role, pre-Goodfellas, and he is excellent at bringing real menace to the role of this ex-con who is going to force Daniels to raise the stakes on what kind of activity he he finds that he can be involved in and how and how much he cares about Audrey and whether they're going to end up together with now that there's a true barrier. Audrey being Lulu's real name. Real name, right. Or mm-hmm. is it, right? <laughs> she seems to be, uh, Audrey seems to be kind of a very, Audrey's a very sketchy character to me. Like, she is... <laughs> there's still me- a lot we don't know about her by the film's end, but I don't feel unsatisfied either. Mm-hmm. Okay. Know, I, I, I feel like I've 
I've learned all I need to learn to make this film work. You know what I mean? Okay. I find her incredibly wanting okay. when, I, when I see her again. I maybe, I have a natural reluctance, I have a natural cynicism to a trope that's uh, known as, thanks to Elizabeth Town, as the manic pixie dream girl. This girl whose love for the schlub-like main character is completely inexplicable and seems to only exist so that her perky manic um, creativity is only there to inspire this person to become a better or more active human being. I, I agree with you on that. However, this was made in 1986 <laughs> when that trope wasn't nearly as frequent as it is when when Elizabethtown came out. Um, okay. I, so I, I can forgive it. I can look at it as a product of its time and forgive it for being for having that trope. Mainly because everything else about the movie works so well that and I'm just kind of in awe of the performances and the structure and and the the sort of disreg- brazen disregard for convention and genre. Hmm. I'm I'm just gonna say on on that performance like that. I wish it actually got to the point of a manic, manic pixie dream girl. Instead, it's a manic pixie dream bimbo. Hmm. Melanie Griffith, like uh, as Brad said. Why would uh, why would someone follow? Or actually, Colin, I think you said it. Why would you go and follow her? Just look at her, <laughs> and, and this level it's not of just a- looking at her. But I just think the way she sizes him up, what after just inter- having a brief exchange with him, and like they kind of make this connection, like oh, we're of the same mind. We you, they're, they have completely different backgrounds, completely different views on life, but they have this little thing in common about being wild and being a little bit reckless and and um and, okay. and so and and that's what, that's what connects the two of them see see the daniel's performance i think as i mentioned before is this is where it could fall apart if it doesn't work because you have to believe that she is not just trying to seduce him for fun Although that may be the the very the thing that motivates her at the very beginning, but you have to believe that this woman, who on the surface seems to be his complete opposite, is truly going to fall in in love with him, and and vice versa. And I agree that Melanie Griffith's performance being a little more one note and more mysterious, and that we don't get to know a lot about her is not what that's going to be based on. It's going to be based on the idea that Jeff Daniels can come to her state of mind. And the film handles that so uh, subtly that uh, I ended up believing this relationship when in so many ways it could have seemed unbelievable. I mean, to me, it's you say it's like uh, to her state of mind, but I look at the movie and I just see her as Jeff Daniels' state of mind. <laughs> Specifically, she is that part of himself that wants to be reckless and do the unexpected thing, the, the, the thing that like is the opposite of what you're expected to do and to be able to get away with it. I think it's kind of no, co- in a weird way, it's no coincidence how like the actual waitress in the diner in the beginning is an African-American lady. And yet the, uh, and yet Melanie Griffith's first appearance 
is filled to the brim with Afrocentric uh, accoutrements. There's little ornaments. Her earrings, I think, actually have an African basis. She's reading a book about Winnie Mandela at Mm -hmm. one point. Okay, see, now that goes a little too far. (laughs) Does it, though, with Demi? Because, and we're going to get into this a lot in in later movies, but he has, for a a white director, he has a lot of African-American leads, supporting characters, Many of his relationships are, are interracial. Uh, his musical interests are uh, multiracial. This seems to be not some kind of surface-level thing with, with Demi, but cultural diversity seems to be one of his cornerstones. Yeah, and, mm. and, and, I, and this is a film that I think builds upon the theme of Stop Making Sense. Uh, and you're talking about when you were watching a Jonathan Demme film, especially this one, looking in the corners and the crevices and looking what's going on in the background. Yeah. This is a film that is loaded with colorful background characters that are literally in the background, but they are adding a dimension to the film that you wouldn't see if you were not paying attention. Stop Making Sense is about a, a guy who is tense and nervous and can't relax, but then uh, eventually loosens up the more he's surrounded with himself with uh, African Americans, uh, who are a- anything but uptight. And in this film, uh, Demi packs up the, 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 the background with all kinds of African American characters who are, uh, noticing Jeff Daniels' character loosening up, noticing that Jeff Daniels' character is not this uptight yuppie that he was, and like sort of helping him and guiding him. They're almost like a Greek chorus in a way. You're and right. They're, they're, yeah, and, and that's so, a great point. And so I, I, to, so I, 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 I agree with Brad. It's not. I don't think this is just. Uh, it's not just being cute. I think there's more to it than that. By the way, just kudos yeah. on being able to thematically connect a concert film with the following narrative film. Yeah. I think that that's a, a great way to to look at these films back to back. Well, I yeah, think this agreed. is this is his best narrative film. In my opinion, by far, I think this is this is Jonathan Demme's narrative masterpiece, and I mean that in the strongest sense of the word. I don't. I know that word gets thrown around very loosely, but I mean it in that in the truest sense. Mm, I'm the like we were talking about, or I was mentioning about how you part of the thing that makes stop making sense so um, special is just how unique it is, how it does something that you would never even expect a film of its type to do, and. That's kind of what something wild has in its very favor. It's like its transition from a madcap, zany, like uh, Michael Sarah esque um, uh, uh, comedy of awkwardness into a blue velvet like look at the dark underbelly of a small town life. Is is done seamlessly, very seamlessly. It looks so effortless when you watch it, but it's and it's all done with one shot. And where they're at the high school reunion, and they're uh, Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith, they just kind of had this argument, and then they've made up, and now they're together. They are they are really together now, um, and they have this wonderful little dance together on the dance floor, and and he's just again. Lo- loosening up, watching the African American couple next to him and how they're dancing, and he's mimicking how they're dancing, and he is really feeling it and feeling really right. great about it. And then the song ends, and then the lights go bl- down, and then the da- camera just dollies in while uh, Griffith and Daniels embrace each other for this kind of slow dance. And then 
Ray Liotta comes gliding by with Irene, and 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 that's the first time we see Ray Liotta. And the music that uh, that Demi picks for this is uh, a masterstroke of uh, just how to use music, and and mm-hmm. uh, it's the Feelies, the band the Feelies uh, that is playing at this high school reunion. And God, what a great band that would mm-hmm. be to have playing anywhere. Um, and, right, but which and it's to this, be. I just want to point out that's a little fanciful. Well, I, I mean, the fe- mid 1980s. How many people even know about the feelings? Right. I'm sure, like their their uh, audience just skyrocketed, you know, because of the film. Sure. I'm For sure. sure. That's where I first heard of them. They're they're not going to have uh, a big I career bought, boost by playing high school reunions, right? So. I mean, I bought a bunch of feelings albums after I saw this movie, um, <laughs> and uh, and the song that they're doing is this. Not a song you can dance to, but it's the perfect song to use as this transition uh, to this in this moment. I have the leads me to run a question by you guys. When you now to me, when you see to me, when you see like the movie, you go and um, the second time and you know what Leota is all about. That that cue is mm-hmm. very nice, and it's it's not quite bum bum bum, yeah. but it is. No, it's you, not. It's... You do you do sense? Oh my gosh, it's like a minor key has like some pages turned. But I want to ask you guys: the first time you saw the movie, how long did it take for you to go to make that realization? Because that was one of the one of my favorite moments. Was it took me twenty minutes? It took. You I, mean after Leota was introduced? Yes, it took me twenty minutes before I go. Wait a minute! This is whole, wait. This is a whole dark movie. It is. I, it, I, I thought it was seeing a wacky comedy. No, no I, I, I think I was probably with you. I mean, I was. I saw it in the theater when it came out, so I, my memory is hazy. But uh, I think uh, Leota's performance in that twenty first twenty minutes of his t- screen time is beautiful because he is being charming. Right. He is be he is like kind of taunting Jeff Daniels, but at the same time he's saying, hey, I'm sorry, man, you're right. I went too far with that conversation. Hey, are we friends? And you want to believe, and, and you can tell Jeff Daniels is like relieved and he like starts trusting him and, and he's given this false sense of security now. And Leota just plays it so beautifully. Yeah. And that's what leads to when that climax, well, I'll say this about the climax between these three characters. This was the first time in a movie theater I saw the whole audience just jump out of their seat. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and just be like, oh my God. Um, see, I yeah. missed out on this experience because I didn't see it uh, on its initial release. So I had already seen Goodfellas mm. and was already somewhat familiar with uh, Ray Liotta's oh. uh, yeah. persona. So I, I pretty much figured he was trouble as yeah. soon as he arrived. <laughs> you know, I, I, for me, I had a growing sense. I had a growing sense. Yeah, he's he's no good stuff. It's it's a real problem that Jeff Daniels is going to overcome. But I did not feel what the quote unquote the problem would eventually turn out to be. <laughs> well, well, the, again, the interesting thing is Ray Liotta gives him a way out. Right. There's a, a, a there's a scene when he basically says, "Here, go away. You're mm-hmm. done." And Jeff Daniels could have done that. Been you know been out of the movie, and that's it. But no, Jeff Daniels, of his own volition, comes back into what he now knows is a really dangerous situation and faces Leota with his eyes open. And it's that decision that takes this movie to the next level. Yeah, it's and uh, right. And that scene like just shows off like just the wealth of detail, like in its way, it's it has an attention to detail 
that rivals some of the stuff known by the filmmaker Wes Anderson. But whereas Wes Anderson makes it obvious that every little section of the movie has been carefully composed, with Demi, I find it a lot more fun, mm-hmm. relatable, for, but for how, for how it has just this feels totally natural. Yeah. Just like you can tell, for example, Jeff Daniels' like, development and his change in character just by the clothes he wears. He mm-hmm. first wears a goofy yellow tie... And then, like, in when he decides to make the jump to try and uh, chase down Melanie Griffith, he's wearing these, like, sh- these shorts. Touristy and a, stuff. Touristy yeah. stuff, mm-hmm. right? I remember thinking while I was watching the, recently, when he finally puts on this garish, like, pink shirt with mm-hmm. bowling ball symbols, I went, ah. His yeah. transformation to Crispin Glover is complete. <laughs> he changes and, and clothes in a, in a gas station. And then the, the attendant, yeah, he's got his shirt off and everything. And the attendant goes, just try to be cool. <laughs> do, do, do you know, and do you know who's playing that gas station attendant? No. Steve Scales from Stop Making Sense. Hey. Oh, so there you go. That. So, um, and I think another thing that, uh, and I know we got to move on to the next film, but you know, we talk about how this film like beautifully transitions from this comedy to this thriller, and then it transitions back to the comedy and you know for the kind of the coda. And yeah. it does that seamlessly as well, too. It does not feel awkward to like go, be kind of pulled back into the romantic comedy feel to it. And all culminates into what is probably my all-time favorite closing credits. Which, I mean, is uh, why, do you, why do you like the closing credits, which basically involve uh, a, the waitress character a rapping Wild Thing, I think, or a variation of Wild Thing? I, I just the- remember the first time I saw it, I was just beside myself hmm. i'm like this movie was great anyway and now it's beyond great <laughs> like nobody i'd never seen a movie do that before right. i've never it's, seen a movie like go try that sort of thing and I, it so brings fresh. me great joy it's fresh yeah, yeah. Mm. you don't expect the character who has in, in a non-musical mm-hmm. to all of a sudden break out into song at the very end of the movie and mm-hmm. that's what happens Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, it tie, it ties me into this like a couple of details I want to bring in because I know we we've got to get into the next movie, but <laughs> but there is a l- couple tangents I just want to bring up. One is that like Demi has shown an interest in where music can takes you from his even earliest films, like even in like Fighting Mad. There's like a sequence where like uh, a lawn a bulldozer is stopping from wrecking a building and and so people are doing a manic fight scene and just out of nowhere they cut to an old guy playing a harmonica right <laughs> right and I mean and plus it help, it bookends the film having her sing that song because the very first character we see is not a character it's a it's an African American guy with a giant radio right and it's blaring that's yeah. blasting the David yeah. Byrne song uh, Wild Thing yeah and, or Lakota Amor is the mm-hmm. name of his song yeah but. the la- like the last embrace has violin playing mm-hmm. well, actually has a prominent place in two particular sequences. Yeah. And so I think Demi is very attuned to how music can move you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it clearly worked for you at the end. Yeah. It also ties into a point you made about how, like, in a way, the movie is kind of the Greek chorus for Jeff Daniels' mm-hmm. character. It, like, it works in that way, I guess, and that's a very rewarding way of looking at the movie in a similar way to this great, great movie called Once by Jay Carney. Mm-hmm. Where everyone really does, with Ray Liotta accepted, though Ray Liotta does give Jeff Daniels chances to escape the situation, but everybody else feels that wants to do the best for him. You know, everyone's a kind of manic pixie person. (laughs) Even his, like, I think it's a super fun twist, for example, how the the totally uptight snobby guy shows up at the reunion. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But he's totally on his side, and eventually at the end he's thumbing up and like saying, "Oh, great job!" I like he wants Jeff Daniels to succeed, and and, and it couldn't be more counter to how Jeff Daniels neurotically thinks it's going to uh, ru- it's going to ruin his life. And to that end, I also want to make a point about a kind of theory of mine on on something wild, which which might be ru- my people might find interesting is how, in a way, I almost look at like how Leota and Melanie Griffith are like the ultimate like fantasy versions of what the light literally the light and dark side of something wild. In fact, I actually think it's literal in one case where they're in a hotel room and Melanie Griffith is dressed in white and Ray Liotta is dressed in black. To me, they mm-hmm. almost could be both talking to him over each shoulder, each uh, over j- different w- different shoulders of angel Jeff Daniels' character. Yeah, yeah the a- right, the angel and devil, and just like how Melanie Griffith reflects the African nature of the real waitress who Jeff Daniels stiffed. When she goes to the reunion, this is a 1980s reunion for like 1976, she's dressed in an outfit that kind of may be coincidence but might not evoke Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. So in a way, she's kind of this now this ideal woman for him. And at the end where she, you know, in effect by magic... Appear just appears right next to him, and then she's totally dressed like almost like Audrey Hepburn's Holly Holly Golightly in this nice polka dot dress. She couldn't be more opposite from Lulu, mm. and they literally get into a 1950s touring station wagon. Yeah. So in a way, it kind of sense that like for both, like she's the kind of thing that Jeff Daniels would want to be, and Leota is the dark side of following that path. That's at least the <laughs> interpretation that I feel on, on that, but. But uh, you're right. We should go move on for like to the next film, which is another giant genre switch. Tell me why. Tell me why. Is it hard to make arrangements with yourself? It looks at performance, but this time performance of spoken word out in uh, Swimming to Cambodia in 1987. Yeah, so this is um, Spalding Gray is a performance uh, monologuist, as I guess was what his considered back then. He's basically just a storyteller, and all of his stories are about his life. And he's, he doesn't really make things up very much. And, um, back then, this was not something that was very common. Now we have all kinds of spoken word. Now it's called spoken word. And we have all kinds of, uh, performers who, who do this sort of thing. Henry Rollins is a good example of that. Stephen Tobolowski is another one. Oh. And, but Spalding Gray was kind of a big influence on a lot of performers uh who are working today or have made a living doing this sort of thing and this was a monologue that he did about his experiences while working as a supporting actor on a film called the killing fields made in 1984 by roland Jaffe, which was a film that was about the secret bombings of cambodia and a new york times reporter who got caught up in it and uh, you know, based on a true story, and it was a big Oscar contender at the time, and I think it won a couple Oscars. And this was about Spalding Gray, who's you know just kind of this underground actor at the time, didn't hadn't done a lot of screen work, 
Um, but he was known for doing these little performances of his monologues. Not to huge audiences, but he was starting to sort of build a, an, a small audience. And again, you know, Jonathan Demi saw the show and thought it would make an interesting film and, uh, recruited, you know, put together a really small crew. John Bailey was the cinematographer and he came in with a lot of ideas. Laurie Anderson was going to do some music. She came in with a lot of ideas. Oh, uh, nice. His editor, Carol Littleton, who would go on to edit a lot of his other films. Um, she brought in some ideas. So it was a real collaborative effort. This is not all Jonathan Demi's. A uh, vision of swimming to Cambodia. This is everybody. It was very much a collaborative effort among you know a very small group of people. The first cut of the film that Carol Littleton put together, when Jonathan Demi saw it, he it was the first time. It was like the only time that he like did not have any notes. Uh, like she had edited a perfect cut the way he the way he saw it. And so, like, what kind of what we see here is a is the first cut of the film. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, they had to take the monologue and kind of pare it down a little bit. And Spalding Gray was, you know, more than uh, willing to, you know, help Jonathan Demi out with by by making a, a, a by taking the piece and whittling it down here and there. But and what you see is just a guy sitting at a desk telling stories. And occasionally, the movie cuts to a, sh- a scene from The Killing Fields that Spalding Gray was involved in. Uh, to give the audience a little bit of context, um, but what, but what you're you're you only see him, but you're imagining so much. You, you he is such a gifted storyteller in putting images in your mind and 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 also giving the audience context about Cambodia and giving a little history lesson about Cambodia and Richard Nixon and Dith Pran and all that, um, because he doesn't assume that you know all that stuff. Without doing it in like in, not in a like dumbed down sort of way either, but in a really interesting way that makes you really think about think about all the, these horrible things, um, and while making it personal as well. This is a, a great example of of Jonathan Demi as seeker because mm-hmm. it, it's one thing to see great rock concerts and think, well, this needs to be filmed. But something like uh, Jonathan a monologue, movie seed. right, right. <laughs> something like a monologue, it, it, it takes that extra level of creativity to say this can be a movie because there's something so inherently uncinematic about a monologue, specifically one where the uh, the speaker is sitting throughout his talk. So Demi pulls out so many great moves to. Uh, change around uh, the the look of the film and 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 use the the camera to build on uh, Spalding Gray's uh, story and again turn something that might not seem cinematic into something cinematic. Right, it's phenomenal how he manages to go and make like something that would that could by all rights just become very boring very quickly like work in a cinema context he's like changing perspective he's moving the camera like the i don't know if it's the same cinematographer that's from uh demi the rest of demi's work but it's doing amazing things with light and shadow as well and and to me i just found it like all visually compelling all the way through like it's interesting to look at uh, even once you get a uh, past like uh spalding gray's words yeah, and uh, it's not the same cinematographer. It's a different guy, but um, but it's uh, 
yeah, the way it kind of gets a front row seat to this show, where Carol Littleton, where she cuts to Spalding Gray in close-ups or at another angle where, you know, it's very precise and it's very, uh, yeah, I don't know how she managed to do this on the first go. I really, I mean, it's amazing. But, I mean, it, it shows just how, how much editing can make such a, a difference in something that seems so minimal and seems so kind of mundane. It's just a guy talking. But you really have to know when to cut to a hand gesture or uh, just, you know, a, a dolly in as, he, as he's talking about this very critical moment. And it just, it makes the show, or makes his performance, rather, uh, uh, better than a front row seat. Right, Right, because when it like when it comes time for like something that's more personal to him, like the cutting is just done, just so maybe a little bit ahead or a little bit behind what he says in a way to like captivate your attention to go wait, wait, I'm a little, mm-hmm. I'm a little disjointed, I'm a little out of sorts, and your head gets more activated, I guess, to set things right, and you're paying more attention mm-hmm. as a result. Which is why when they do cut to the killing field scenes. It's extra jarring because we have been in this environment. We feel at home here in this theater. So when we leave the theater for the film clips, you are definitely paying attention. Such a great mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Like when you, it shows a great example that like when you like can like remove like elements, like say if you remove elements from sound, then eventually like a door closes, it can become like a gunshot. And that's how like the killing feels cut feels to me. It's just like so blaring. Like and you really get this big flash of the scope of what he has been dealing with or what he's been trying to express. Yeah, all it comes at you so sharply by being in such a claustrophobic environment until that point. Yeah, and I think also a really effective piece of this film is Laurie Anderson's score. Definitely, um, she also did some music for Something Wild, and and which was she, she did more of the haunting aspects of the score. Ah. Uh, she did a lot some chants on that, which really was beautiful. Um, and then this, uh, she's it's more into percussion and uh, synthesizers and the things that she's kind of known for. But it's a really beautiful score. I mean, it's a really... Uh, she she just adds to the tension of it whenever he's talking about something that you know, is tense. <laughs> right. Um, In a way, it's kind of surprising to me that, like, uh, Demi was able to get away from Laurie Anderson in the sense that she, uh, Laurie Anderson, to me, is such a compelling, creative person on a moment-to-moment-to-moment basis, and I was lucky enough to, like, see her in person at a film festival talking about her movie heart of a dog which mm-hmm. is also really inspired and creative yeah and i figure if i'm a guy like demi who is so drawn to this like would you why would you leave the room <laughs> right <laughs> when she's there you know and uh, as a little sidebar um laurie anderson herself made a really terrific concert film called home of the brave that utilized a lot of the same techniques demi used for stop making sense so there was he all right away had an, that movie had an influence uh, amazing great yeah. a value add for two really uh, fascinating creative people yeah right. yeah now one thing i found a little disconcerting and this is probably just due to my unfamiliarity with the the form is Spalding Gray's monologue itself because I'm I'm generally used to when seeing something like a a, a one man show that uh you know isn't necessarily a, a, an actor playing a character but an actor speaking 
as himself for there to be, even though we understand there's probably a script for there, there to be the illusion of spontaneity. And he doesn't really do that. So, you know, you, you can tell he's absolutely following word for word, uh, a scripted storyline. And he speaks very fast at certain points and goes off on, uh, on many different tangents. And so, you know, as interesting this, interestingly as this was filmed, I did find myself a little alienated by Spalding Gray's own performance, but I only, you know, this is my introduction to him, so I don't really have the context of what he does. I think if you watch it again, you'll see there is a technique there that he's doing. I mean, he is, he is very much aware of when he's turning the page in his notebook, when he's rolling up his sleeves. You know, there's, there's various techniques that he's using that is very self-conscious and self-aware and, and, you know, that, that he's doing at that time for a reason. But and I've not, I noticed the last time I watched it, the last couple times I watched it, he is he, yeah he is following a script, but he's also kind of tripping over his words sometimes. He is stuttering here and there a little. He is kind of saying he is kind of I don't think he's doing it intentionally either. But and which is kind of nice because I think that they're they're leaving in the imperfections of his performance, and it, it's I think that's something you notice a little bit more if you watch it again. Hmm. Um, and I and I definitely recommend the follow up uh, Spalding Gray's follow up uh, film. There's a film called Monster in a Box, which is in a way a sequel to this. It's uh, Demi didn't direct it. Uh, Tom DeCillo directed it, but it's the same basic premise. Um, and and but it's Spalding Gray talking about uh, his life after swimming to Cambodia, which was a, a minor art house hit. Um, it did very well. Did better than a, you know, a movie like this should do. Uh, for its time at the art houses, and but the, he was getting some very strange show business offers in the wake of the success of Swimming to Cambodia, and that's yeah. what Monster in a Box is about, among other things. And it's it's really it's much it's a much funnier monologue than Swimming to Cambodia. It's not nearly as heavy, mm-hmm. but it's uh, definitely worth seeing. And and Steven Soderbergh made some films w- about uh, with Spalding Gray as well, uh, Gray's Anatomy, and uh, and Everything Is Going Fine. Um, both of which are definitely worth seeing. And I just want to add that Tom Tom DeCilio, who I think used to be like the cinematographer for Jim Jar- Jarmusch, is a fine filmmaker in his own right. Mm-hmm. And he had a sim- he has to me a similar like open sensibility in the films he does, and to me has made the best example of the difficulties of independent filmmaking with living in oblivion. Oh God, yeah, definitely. Talking about difficulties in filmmaking, that might lead us out to talk about our next uh, film, uh, Married to the Mob in 1988. Brad, I believe you have a pretty de- a strong impression on this film? Yes, yes. Uh, briefly, uh, it's, it's about uh, Michelle Pfeiffer uh, and her character, uh, Angela, who uh, may have thought that uh, she could start her life over after her mob thug uh, husband, played by uh, Alec Baldwin, is rubbed out. But the uh, attentions of of mob boss uh, Dean Stockwell, as well as uh, FBI agent Matthew Modine, is going to keep her life very, very complicated. 
unfortunately, as it also managed to keep me very, very bored. And no. I guess in a filmography this big, it, it had to happen eventually that I would come across a Demi movie I just dislike. And, and this is the one. For a mob movie, even a mob comedy, it, it, it struck me as the dullest mob I, I could possibly imagine, aside from using the forget about it and the little uh, stereotypical uh, mob-isms, everyone is so devoid of personality in this film. Michelle Pfeiffer's working with this accent uh, that, that, that doesn't suit her. Uh, Dean Stockwell seems to be sleepwalking. And, and worst of all, uh, Matthew Modine is like this, uh, dead zone as both an action and romantic lead. Uh, they're trying to be this quirky FBI agent. You see him first introduced, uh, with automated, uh, uh, tools in his home to help him put his clothes on faster, I guess. It's got it's, a Jetsons or Something like that. It's this really, it's this homemade version of that, and it's never referenced again. And I'm just like, they, clearly at some point somebody thought about making this character interesting. Then they're like, oh, it's Matthew Modine. There's not that much we can do. I do have <laughs> to point out that the phrase, worst of all, Matthew Modine, should kind of be his credit, you know, how like certain movies have an and uh, after at the end of the credits finish with worst of all Matthew Modine in The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I I have a soft spot in my heart for this film. I do. I I know it's not great. I know it's nowhere it's not top tier demi, but um I remember when this was this film was first advertised how excited I got because it's a Jonathan Demi film. And David Byrne is doing the score. Like, I am so in. Right. It's my most anticipated film of the summer of 88. I don't care. Um, it was far from the best film that summer, obviously. But uh, I, it, this is sort of uh, Demi still during, dur uh, during his sort of this period that starts with Stop Making Sense and kind of ends here where he's really uh, enveloped into the sort of art world, New York art world scene and, and, um, just kind of having fun with this, this is this is Demi just at his most playful. You know, he is uh, filling the frame with as much color as he possibly can, with as much gaudy set design as he could possibly get, and uh, just sort of this is him at his at, at this point, at least since uh, Crazy Mama. This is him at his most loose and his most uh, freewheeling. Um, no, it's not a great film at all. And, but I, I actually, I, I enjoy Matthew Modine in this film. I think, it, I think there's some charm there. I think him and, I, 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 I like, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer as well. Um, if you think Mary Steenburgen's Academy Award win in Melvin and Howard is, mm -hmm. is, is, uh, uh, hard to fathom, Dean Stockwell was nominated for an Academy Award for this film. Wow. wow. Yeah, I thought I could not respect the Academy Awards less, but that bit of information did it. Yeah, I mean, it's. I don't think it's a bad performance. It's fine, but it's certainly not award-worthy. I mean, the award went to um, uh, Kevin Klein and Fish Called Wanda anyway, so that's good. Um, and, hey, you know, at least they are nominating comedies, I guess. But, I mean, right. um, but, it, you know, it. but there's, you watch it today and it's like, okay, so it's whatever. Um but I, I have a special place in my heart for this film because um, 
for for like I said, nostalgia reasons, I guess. And uh, the soundtrack kicks ass. I mean, this CD, I still listen to it regularly. It's you know Sinead O'Connor and uh, New Order and Brian Eno and uh, Tom Tom Club and um, the Feelies, and you know, it's just like it's a great collection of songs that I listened to a lot in high school. And I had some hope <laughs> as this opened because the opening credit sequence is a lot of fun. Uh, as you said, you have uh, very colorful uh, uh, credits, and and I've, uh, maybe you remember the name of the song that uh, used. It was Mambo but, Italiano. Yeah. yeah. And, th- and that's a lot of fun, and, and, and I felt like you know, coming off of something wild, maybe this this would have that kind of energy. But and and it ha- it was there during the opening credits, and it just seemed to drain mm-hmm. afterwards, which I found strange. Just seeing how Demi was able to maintain that level of energy in something wild, seeing it not happen here. Yeah, I mean, it was a movie that was acclaimed in its day. I don't mean like widely, like four stars for across the board kind of acclaimed, but I, a lot of critics gave it a pass when it came out because I think they were like like me, just excited about a Jonathan Demi film and a comedy, and it was it film it, it it sort of uh, was expanding on a lot of the visual sensibilities that he was doing with something wild, which was widely acclaimed, and. Um, and it's just it's a movie that just kind of doesn't hold up as well. It doesn't it doesn't like hold up in our you know today as it doesn't play the same way today. Like you couldn't make this movie, you couldn't make this script today without getting in trouble with the uh and the Italian American Anti Defamation League. You know because there's just loaded with Italian mm-hmm. stereotypes um, that you know just just kind of you kind of wince when you watch it. Um, but I just, I don't know. I, I, I think I have fun when I watch it. I mean, it's, it's not, there's nowhere near the top of my go-to list for Demi films, but, um, when revisiting it in the context of this, uh, you know, podcast, it was kind of a relief to watch a piece of fluff after watching a lot of the heavies that I, we had to go back and watch, uh, before doing this. Psycho we will move on now to another uh, madcap film full of joy called Silence of the Lambs. Uh, you guys may have heard of the movie. It's um, the story of refined psychopath Hannibal Lecter gets a new friend, a visitor from the FBI named Clarice Starling, who is paying him a visit because they she needs his aid to try and track a, another serial killer who's out there abducting women and taking their skin called Buffalo Bill. This is obviously a very a famous movie, a legendary movie, one that inspired a whole legacy, multiple awards, was a box office smash. What more needs to be said about Silence of the Lambs, you may be asking? Well, one thing I'd like to bring up is, for all these accolades, how much of a failure the movie turned out to be. To me, it's akin to like how MTV has had its anniversary. <laughs> but now MTV is known as a as a station that doesn't air any music videos, which is ridiculous. 
Like, if you have a cable channel called the Golf Channel, and 20 years after that, they have all bowling, <laughs> it's a failure of what it tries to do. And when you look at Silence of the Lambs, it, to me, it actually fails almost as bad. Because if looking at the plot of Silence of the Lambs, it is about Clarice's Starling story. It's about her struggles, her navigation in the world. It's it how she interacts not just with Hannibal Lecter, but with Buffalo Bill and with her and with her FBI superiors. And it's a very thoughtful, nuanced look at how she has to rectify these things both in her job and internally in her own psychology, which is very broken and and uh, and has a very complex relationship with uh, Hannibal Lecter in the different in the way that Lecter is able to push her buttons. So if, as it turns out, nobody has ever cared after the movie's done about Clary Starling and all of this things becomes compl- has become completely irrelevant to me in the public consciousness. It's all the Hannibal Lecter show. Hannibal Lecter is this supercharged, quip-making serial killer who's so super cool, and everybody wants to see what Hannibal Lecter is doing, despite the fact that I think he only has 20 minutes in the whole movie. So if a guy who is in 5% of your movie is 100% of what people remember about it, can you say that the movie was successful in what it was trying to do. Well, you know, if uh, if I could see a failure like this every time I go to the movies, I would be incredibly happy because I, I do think this is a genre masterpiece. I think it stands with Stop Making Sense as Demi's uh, best work. To kind of answer where you're going with that, I have kind of two parts to it. One is which... It features a monumental performance by an actor, and that actor is Jodie Foster, which is not to say the other actor isn't also doing that, but we already know that. Jodie Foster deservedly uh, won a Best Actress Award for what I think is the best work of an incredibly uh, gifted uh, career, and very much kept it from being the Hannibal Lecter show. Uh, those scenes that, that are so vivid of, of Hopkins and, and Foster going toe to toe in the cell, they don't work if it's just Anthony Hopkins doing what he's doing alone. It's Foster's responses. It's the way she resonates. It's the way everything he says affects her that we can see in her eyes and the shaking of her voice. Uh, So we have a movie with not one, but two amazing performances. And and also, I'm philosophically kind of against the idea of blaming a film for the... uh, what subsequently happens to a film's uh, series. Because, you know, this was followed by a number of sequels, a television series, all of which focused on Hannibal. Uh, and I, I'll say I have not seen the series, which I've heard people love. The two sequels are nowhere near as good as Silence because it doesn't have that other half. So I'm afraid like a lot of the, uh, the failing 
that, that you mentioned sounds to me like criticizing Star Wars, uh, the, the original Star Wars, for Jake Lloyd, uh, Lloyd's performance in uh, The Phantom Menace. It's like, mm. these are all things that are outside the movie itself. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, and I, I think this is uh, one of Demi's best films. Um, and I, this, is, this is kind of the start of another phase in his career. Not as interesting as the previous phase, in my opinion, but it's definitely showing a, a new sensibility for him from him as a director, just kind of going from this bubbly comedy like Married to the Mob and uh, going right into this horror film or horror thriller or whatever you want to call it. And I, I agree. I think the, the key to this working as well as it does is not just Demi's technique, but Jodie Foster. She gives that character such great credibility. There's so many ways that this role could have been miscast. So I instantly buy her as this sort of up-and-coming FBI agent in training. Like you said, her it, acting is reacting. And her reactions to not just Hannibal Lecter, but all the other the men who are surrounding her in this film, who are kind of looking down on her, who look who are not looking at her as an equal, and how she handles that um, is uh, incredibly moving and also very progressive for its time. Remember, this we're still coming out of the eighties here. This was made in nineteen ninety one, but we're you know we're made in nineteen ninety ish. And coming, you know, we're still in the Reagan Bush era, and you know, we're putting in a, a a female character like this at the center of a film, and who is expected to take charge in this male-dominated world. Um, again, it kind of speaks to Demi's um, progressivism at a time when it was very unconventional to, uh, you know, attempt something like that. Now, granted, this is based on a book by Thomas Harris, and there was it's kind of a sequel to Manhunter in a way. I mean, Manhunter came first as far as the Hannibal Lecter's uh, movies are concerned. Demi, is, is as a craftsman, is really just knocking it out of the park for, the, with, for his first sort of genre film since you know his Roger Corman days. Just to give a specific uh, example of, of what you were talking about with the film's subtle uh, sexism theme that it, it's utilizing throughout, there's this... Uh, seen that that it's brief and could be a throwaway but uh in the context uh, of the film is meaningful uh it's just when Clarice uh gets into the uh, an elevator with uh with a group of other uh, all male agents they're all taller than her she seems vulnerable here just an av- in it, it, visually they look at her she's constantly being looked at not just by Hannibal but by every male in the film. That's a that's a really good point, and it's also important to um, go off, Colin, what you had said, and put this in context, is that at this period, especially among the Federal Bureau of Investigation, it was very, very much considered an old boys club, mm-hmm. to the extent that it had still fallen under like this these kind of a button-down, J. Edgar Hoover-approved levels of dress, like your hair had to look a certain way. And so there was a way that a person was expected to look, and that that, the, that person had to be male was just treated as an almost ironclad default. So yeah, her So her position on there is very, very distinct, especially at the time. Yeah, and and Scott Glenn's character, I think, is the key to that. You know, he, his character's 
is very interesting. It could have been just kind of this, just incidental character, like a necessary character, but not really a character. But instead, he his character has to maintain this power dynamic between the men and women in his field, even though he might be attracted to Clarice. That is brought up. And he seems to have more respect for her than the respect for the other men in his in his field. And An appreciation so for what she's going through. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really interesting that that's um, underscored in the film. It's not, you know, that that it's, it's this kind of this little side story that's going on. Mm-hmm. Never really resolved either, but it's interesting. Yeah. When you look, if you look a little past what the plot is on Silence of the Lambs, it does lend, the film itself does lend a real richness if you consider that it is Clarice's search for where she can fit in the world and each of the main male characters is kind of a part of her personality or enhances a part of her personality. Like uh, Scott Glenn is obviously the authority kind of thing, but also has a very fatherly level of mentorship to it, is a person that she looks up to. And Hopkins is a cycle is a guy who's very in tune to the psychological impulses that got her the job in the first place the real spark that got her to chase after serial killers which is if you think about it is a really thankless horrible endeavor to pursue mm-hmm. you get to see humanity at its worst what compels someone to do that which is a by the way also a really great focus in Manhunter, what gets a person and, and how it's tough to get that out of your own head. Here, I think Hopkins and very much lives in Jodie Foster's head. I think it's actually no coincidence that he is in prison, but it is one of the weirdest prisons you've ever seen. It's a dungeon. <laughs> you, you will literally go down into this stuff cut out of the rock where these glass panels are out there. And Hopkins' first appearance, which is very striking, he's not caught, like, in the bathroom or reading a book. He is standing there looking at Clarice as soon as she arrives. It's like he might as well have not existed until she's right there in that compartment. Well, it's one of the great cinematic techniques to introduce a character midway through the film after having every other character talk about them mm-hmm. extensively giving the uh, this uh, subconscious build up before you see him like if everyone's talking about this character he really uh, must be something and then as you said when when you actually see him and he's there in in wait it's such a powerful moment and it leads to uh, a camera technique that uh, Demi is going to use elsewhere, but I think never better than here, which is the straight-on shot of, of the actor's face looking into the camera, where often there would be a two-shot uh, or an over-the-shoulder shot. Demi will, will choose the straight-on shot, and the way that's done with Ant- the way Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster are basically playing the the, the, the the highest level of acting games with each other, and Hopkins not blinking, looking looking at her like uh, like like uh, the the snake in the Garden of Eden is just so powerful, right? And 
in a way, like, it's a similarity on the kind of cross-genre pollination, pollination that Demi did with Something Wild. I think in Silence of the Lambs, he actually grafts in a police procedural, a, that kind of thriller, with a monster movie. A straight-up monster movie. That set with the prison could have had the bri- could have had the bride of frankenstein in the next cell right, because the mm-hmm. prison in manhunter is far more realistic so so you're right the, the, this prison is is in no way i think meant to represent what an act the actual prison would look like for a criminal of this type but instead this descent into the psyche right yeah and and the, the unblinking gaze of lecter is pro- is no is no coincidence either like he's able to like observe Foster in a way that a uh, few others can't. And I think those facing shots that you describe really bring that out. There's no escape. There's no other part of the frame you need to look at. Lecter is facing you. <laughs> and when it's Starling's view, Starling is facing you. You are getting all of them. There's like a film concept that the idea that like if you see someone's profile, it's kind of gives you a little hint that they might be hiding something. And I think that was a case of Demi trying to go as far in the opposite direction as you possibly could. That there, when there's those moments, they have nothing to hide from each other. Getting back to what Brad was talking about, with where Demi positions the camera straight on, that sort of which would become kind of his trademark for a while. The 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 Demi close up. There's also if there's also a way that he frames these shot a lot, many of the shots in this film, putting the camera in a in a position with regard to who has the power in the scene, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it's not always Jodie Foster and it's not always uh, Anthony Hopkins. It's, it's a very careful technique that he's using in this film to tell the story. I think there's also another kind of visual motif that connects it to something wild, which is. Uh, the reoccurring image of the American flag, um, oh, wow. which is which is prevalent throughout Something Wild, if you if you look closely, and um, and it's prevalent here as well. It's uh, you know it's it, the American flag is draped over the Rolls Royce when uh, she finds the severed head in the in that uh, locker, um, and it's just kind of appears periodically. The uh, the girl, the victim, is singing American Girl the Tom Petty song uh, wow. before she gets killed. Right. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, Demi is just an, um, you know, obviously he's an American filmmaker, but he, he loves kind of throwing that in uh, as, uh, you know, a, an exploration of, you know, our troubled country um, with regards to either race or sexism or whatever. It's, it's definitely, I think it's all there for a reason. Well, if you, if you follow the, the sexism argument in the way that, well, like how, it's looking about like Clarice's characters, the her place in society, about how her gender. It provides a really interesting echo with the Buffalo Bill character, mm. who I actually find way more fascinating and compelling than Lecter, who is who might as well have his own Saturday morning cartoon show, frankly, even mm. for me, about like having his uh, different quips about having people's liver with Piacente. I'm waiting for his wine endorsements, right? Buffalo Bill is, in a way, he's kind of doing the same thing, right? By he's literally not comfortable in his own skin, except mm-hmm. that he literally takes the next step of appropriating other, skinnably appropriating others. Right, for a movie with, with no sex in it, there is 
a sexual undertone in, in, in all these characters and, and, and its darkest uh, literally, form. Literally so, in, by the way, right. when Jodie Foster's in the underground dungeon and that other person assaults her. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And the, the the Buffalo Bill character re- really also kind of provides the other end, whereas Lecter is menacing because he is uh, uh, psychologically powerful uh, as well as psychotic and a killer. Here is somebody who is completely out of control. And whereas uh, you were talking about uh, Jodie Foster's personality being represented by other characters, and if you take that to, to Buffalo Bill, then you have this idea of all the the stress she is feeling as a woman in a man's world, as somebody out of place uh, in the FBI. Right. Then you know, here you have a, a character out of place, as you said, in his own skin. Yeah, and I find that interaction between him and his captive, the the actress playing the the last captive of Buffalo Bill is so compelling, mm-hmm. and it's a really it's a thing that the movie does really interesting. And I would I've wished more films and things followed up on it because their dynamic, like that that power is nowhere near as one sided as you think. And like mm-hmm. and Buffalo Bill is caught in a vulnerable position uh, a couple of times, like once when like when his dog gets uh, put in the well, mm-hmm. and the the would-be quote-unquote victim it really is a very strong in terms of like how she fight how she fights back and resists in a way she like has more like psychological strength than the a sensible killer which i think is a really interesting point i think the film is trying to make and it ties these the buffalo bill and clarice dynamic i think reaches its connection with the filmmaking style that you described brad the face close-up in that very thrilling final sequence, which to me I think was one of the first ones that uses night vision. Mm-hmm. That is a jolting moment when Jody is frantically looking around and she can't see anything, and then you just get this yeah. hand come out from the bottom that that actually is not even trying to threaten her right. so much as touch her. Mm-hmm. But that that level where it's it doesn't look inherently threatening, but you feel the complete threat is so effectively done in that scene right and and, you know obviously we're going into a lot of themes here but just on a pure filmmaking level it's one of the best suspense films ever made i mean it it, it is hitchcockian in how it builds and how it creates uh tension and i think some of the great thrillers that are gonna you know come later in the decade uh like seven owe a debt to this film i think that basically this film modernized the thriller. Yeah, I mean it. It definitely made its mark, and is definitely one of the most influential uh, of all films. And uh, that came out of nowhere. I mean, nobody expected this movie to be the cultural phenomenon it turned out to be. I mean, Orion Pictures uh, released it in February of 1991. You know, not exactly cam- Oscar campaign season. Um, but for some reason, I mean, it had a lasting impact. It was a big hit towards the end of the year. I mean, it, it still was well remembered. I mean, it, that's kind of unheard of. I mean, for a movie to come out in February and then a year later when the Academy Awards are on, that it wins everything. Even to the extent that, as you mentioned, that Anthony Hopkins has a, a 15 right. uh, minute role here in the movie. Obviously, a best supporting actor right. nomination, which he would have. One 
without any without so easy but they went for best actor and even though you know it's not really right he wasn't a lead actor in the film the way that performance resonates uh like you were saying about it being a a monster movie anthony hopkins joins the ranks of of bella lugosi's dracula to darth vader to the alien and alien as as one of the great monsters uh, of film history yeah Yeah. he does i I just wish he didn't run it into the ground oh yeah the two sequels were you know very unnecessary right well that follows the fine monsters of tradition you know Mm. like maybe five years from now we'll get to have uh, hannibal lecter meets a brooklyn gorilla with abbott and costello (laughs) you know (laughs) the film's influence cannot be denied I think that influence on balance is pretty bad because to me, what he does is it takes Lecter and for a long while in something that we still have today, it took the serial killer and made it a bridge between the muscle bound action heroes of the eighties and followed it up on being in effect, a really dark and unpleasant power fantasy. People like Lecter. They dig him. They love that. They literally eat up the prospect of of the super refined killer who is like always has the quip at the ready and is like so clearly superior to these piss ants who are like trying to impose their like will of society on him. And I have to be honest, Demi deserves some of the blame for that because no one put a gun to his head as far as I can tell and made him do the last line of the movie is. Oh, remember this snob who mm. like thought who who was the head of the jail? I think I'm having him over for dinner. Which I'm sorry, might as well just have the um uh, the yeah from CSI is, <laughs> and, and, or or like James Bond or Mister Freeze from Batman and Robin could not have asked for a better it, quip. It's a, that's what we want from a serial killer a a clever quip. It is exactly that's what the society wants. From it him. is exactly what we want from this serial killer because we do have buffalo bill there to contrast buffalo bill shows the other side of the coin the out of control we see uh he's the one we see uh being violent because part of the power of anthony hopkins character is he is always caged so we never see what he could do if he were uncaged and and that builds it but as 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 far as the well you want to see it and that's where the sequels screwed up is they showed it to us we never Mm -hmm. should be able to see it because if we can't see it then we're going to wonder wonder what it's like which is so much stronger but look this is not a documentary about serial killers i i the the fact that they have given this particular serial killer a personality that is so distinct outrageous and memorable is to me only a good thing it is i do have to point out that like that whether through divine accident or demi's intent I mean, he has done a mar, he did a marvelous job of making Lecter iconic. What almost every line of his is quotable. That part where he's in the straight jacket with the mask, everyone knows instantly what that's mm-hmm. all about. It's, it's burned into our memory. We should also credit Thomas Harris, who who yeah. wrote the book, where where a lot of the dialogue is taken uh, straight from. And I actually have have read the book, and the the book works like gangbusters as well. 
maybe part of my negative or more negative view of Signs of the Lambs comes from that I did read the book. And yeah, the I book, never read the book. And the book has a level where Hannibal Lecter's is very, even more minor in that in that book. It's very, very much Clarice's story, and you get a, the opportunity to be a lot more into her psychology and her interactions with her boss and her complexities of Buffalo Bill and the various details of Buffalo Bill's killings, like like the the moth that comes mm-hmm. in the throat is like given a lot more a lot more weight to it. Which is mm-hmm. I mean that is a really cool feature. Like honestly, this may be Demi's most motif one. Maybe with Stalong will stop making sense ironically. <laughs> because there's so many themes and ideas going on. Like the moth is such a great example of for example, transformation. Mm-hmm. And since moths are constantly thought about like with old clothes and so on, its connection of decay and death with transformation is a very, I think, a very cool one. And one that leads to like rewards when you look at the movie further. And it's so much also about the surface identity because also like something wild, the outfits. Jodie Foster's character is so buttoned down and, and her clothing is like kind of constricting her, but it's also kind of, in a way, protecting her. Like a like an like an insect carapace, for example, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like in its own way, it's a skin that protects her and gives her identity in a way that Buffalo Bill's trying to do. So I guess that's part of where my disappointment of the movie comes because there's all these themes, and and society doesn't care about any of them. They care more along the lines of like, hmm, will Lecter eat Italian tonight? Well, yeah! that's that's true of every film, though. Like, there's. <laughs> You know, you can't fault this film for what people take away from it, and 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 a in a broad mainstream scale. There aren't that you know people who dissect movies like this thematically are in the minority for the people who go see movies for entertainment. That's just the way it is. Um, but I mean, there are the film does draw a lot of criticism from various factions. I mean, in a way, as far as progressivism goes, it's, it is kind of one step forward, two steps back in one regard, in that, you know, you, you have a, a, a female character who is the hero, which is not normally seen at this point, but it does set back homosexuals and transgender people a bit with the Buffalo Bill character. That, that movie has come under controversy for that D- sort of thing. Despite a line of dialogue where they, they do try to say, no, this has nothing to do right. with uh, with transgendered. The point is well taken because, you know, you could follow the line uh, back to Psycho mm-hmm. and, and uh, the cross-dressing in that film and see that Hollywood uh, does view this as a source of horror and i think that you know you're right that 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 in that that is a reflection of its time that would would not would be handled differently were it made today and i think that may have had an impact i don't know if demi you know took that criticism to heart and use it used it towards his next film but it's possible his next film was philadelphia um which was the first hollywood film to deal with aids City of brotherly love, place I call home. Don't turn your back on me. I don't wanna be alone. Yes, Philadelphia. It stars uh, Tom Hanks as uh, 
hotshot lawyer, Andrew Beckett, who is fired from uh, his high-powered law firm after his condition becomes known, and he enlists the help of a TV lawyer and uh, his sometime uh, rival, uh, Joe Miller, played by uh, Denzel Washington, uh, who is also a homophobe and has his own issues to deal with in in taking on a a gay client and and dealing with the uh, cultural biases as... uh, as Andrew also struggles to uh, gain justice as well as deal with the effects of the deadly disease. He may have actually been stung back in the day with those criticism column that you had mentioned, that it was that he was you know, offensive and unfair. And to me, it ends up just like a piece of Oscar bait pap to me. You know, some film whose most notable feature is how people at the time were not quite used to that message. And it was mm-hmm. it was not just that it gives that message, but its entire purpose is to make Hollywood people feel good that they are someone who is giving you this message. And to me, it doesn't also help that it's tied into the courtroom drama trope, which like includes such Perry Mason-esque a- a- examples as, can you take off your shirt? to show your suffering to the world. Okay, to me it seems as just an artifact. It's just like, well, you had to be there at the time, and is there any reason for someone to see Philadelphia, apart from its historical context? I don't really find too much, but what do you guys think? Well, I I think uh, one reason would be uh, Tom Hanks' performance, uh, which in a a film that I, I do agree has some problems, and I'll go into them, but I think... As a pure acting example, uh, this is the Oscar Tom Hanks did deserve. Uh, he not only physically transforms, but, uh, utilizes every bit, bit of his, himself, his eyes, his, uh, demeanor to, uh, play the complex emotions utterly convincing. So where I, I think much of the rest of the film, uh, there's room for criticism. I, I, I think if you want to see this film for a, a, an amazing performance from Tom Hanks. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. Um, I think the film is, at, at the start of the film, Demi tries to put the viewer into the here and now, meaning 1993. Um, by having sort of documentary like footage in the opening credits of real people in Philadelphia. You know, you could tell that he, you know, just took his camera out on the street and just got real, realist, uh, realistic, candid shots of people, uh, in Philadelphia. It, it's the lack of subtlety is what keeps this movie from aging well, mm-hmm. really. Uh, it hasn't aged well and it's, it's a movie of its time for its time. Um, and it, that, that happens a lot with a movie that, you know, tackles a timely subject, um, which this was, this was the first Hollywood film to tackle the AIDS crisis and it exposes homophobia for this vile undercurrent in American society and using the Denzel Washington character to, uh, express that it does that in a really awkward and, um, unconvincing way. Like Denzel Washington's leap from, uh, you know, this detestable homophobe to suddenly being a compassionate lawyer because of the way he sees Tom Hanks, 
character treated at a local library is just too great a leap. It's just not good screenwriting. It's just too... And Washington tries, but doesn't... I wasn't sold on it. Um, There's just not enough to convince the audience that he would take this case. Right, and and his performance really falls into, Al, what you were saying about the the trap of the courtroom drama. He even says uh, at the beginning of the trial, there's going to be no theatrics, there's going to be no big surprise, Mm -hmm. this is about the law. And then he pulls out every uh, goofy... There was even a slow clap. But but the the thing, as I was watching this thing, trying to kind of pinpoint why it wasn't quite working... uh, I, I think for me the worst offender was uh, the use of a score of, of the score mm-hmm. uh, from Howard Shore. Now nothing wrong with the Howard Shore music itself, but it is used incessantly at all the yeah. wrong moments. And I was just thinking there there's a scene where in the office where um, once uh, Denzel Washington realizes Tom Hanks has AIDS, he then starts looking at, oh, my God, he's touching things in my office that I will touch. And what what does that mean? And this actually had the makings of a very powerful moment completely undercut yeah. uh, by the, the musical score, which is used so much and so inappropriately and that 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 and what's what's strange about that is there's other music in the film that is used wonderfully there's moments of uh bruce springsteen's song streets of philadelphia neil young's song philadelphia and uh and 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 where uh, hanks is listening to opera where the music is working with the film but the score itself is working against the film and the other thing that I think is working against the film is what we talked about uh, in Silence of the Lambs with the uh, close-up uh, of the actors facing the camera, which uh, was so effective in Silence, and here is completely distracting. It's the exact wrong movie for this technique. Yeah, and but it's it's the only it's one of the only things um, about the film that makes it a Jonathan Demme film for me. Like Mm -hmm. Jonathan Demme does not exist in this film except through those close-ups and except at a a scene at a a party where the band is singing a cover of Talking Heads song Heaven. Um, That's about it. That's like the only... I did like that scene quite a bit. Oh, I do too. (laughs) No, there are good scenes in this film. And like you said, Tom Hanks, if there's a reason to watch this film, it's Tom Hanks. His performance does hold up. Um, It is great. And because he is not, he's playing a gay character and not using any sort of like shorthand to mm-hmm. show that he's a gay character. Um, and I, 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 I think that's really notable and, 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 and a noble way to play it. And for a film that is well aware of its nobility, um, <laughs> a little too aware of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's, it, it's unfortunate that when you watch it today, you just kind of wince at it more than admire it. I, I think um, it, it goes on the list now with uh, Gentleman's Agreement and uh, Billy, Jack. Guess who, Billy Jack, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah. Oh, Very uh, well-meaning uh, films that were progressive uh, at its time, mm-hmm. but looking at it through the through the lens of 2017 just just no longer seem uh no just no longer works there there was a movie yeah. called uh freeheld i believe it came out a couple of years ago with julianne moore and um 
what's her name from Juno? Uh, Ellen Page? Yes. Mm-hmm. Ellen Page as a lesbian couple. And it was very much like this, only made today mm-hmm. but still with a lot of the same problems mm. as this film <laughs> so it's like so it's like they made an updated version of philadelphia but they made it just like philadelphia uh, it's really bad and, um, and you know it just leads to like as we were talking about demi honestly i think that's kind of there's other directors who if they made such a pandering piece of schlock like philadelphia you go okay that's that's unfortunate but to me, I have an extra level of, unfor- of feeling bad about the movie because I've gained an extra level of appreciation for what Demi has to offer in like his early films. Like, where is this attention to detail? Where is this like level of like look at the margins of society? Yeah. Where is this like over encompassing empathy towards people instead of just going? Well, the homophobia, ans- you're bad. The answer you know? might be the the this brief excursion into. Hollywood, because uh, because Demi, even though he after a few films uh, worked within the system, didn't really seem like a Hollywood director until he until he won the Oscars, and then his next couple films would, with varying degrees, feel like more Oscar wanting films. I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right, Brad. If he if he had gotten major studio attention to make Melvin and Howard. They would have cut that middle part so quick. It's like, well, no, courtroom. You can make big theatrics in the courtroom. Let's just have that footage. And Philadelphia is one where the suits may have got the upper hand. I, I don't know about that. I mean, Melvin and Howard was from a major studio. Universal put money into that film. Um, so that's, I, 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 I think that's just a, a, a bad example. But Well, they uh, didn't have I, Oscar-related awards from the previous film to go, ooh. True, yeah. true, true. But, uh, I mean... Demi at this point, I mean, he is, he had been working, he had been making films for Orion Pictures, which is a very, which at that time was very much about, uh, letting the auteur make an auteur film. You know, Woody Allen was making films with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were very artist friendly. And now Philadelphia is his first film, uh, since, uh, Swing Shift, uh, away from Orion Pictures. Uh, Philadelphia mm-hmm. was made by Columbia TriStar. So yeah, it's definitely more conventional now. He's 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 moving into you know very uh, standard dramatic tropes and and being a little more manipulative or a lot more manipulative. But <laughs> um, but I mean you can't really say that about the film after this. I mean Beloved is a crazy movie that it's disguised as Oscar bait, but when you watch it, there's a lot going on in it that's. Kind of a, I mean, you just go, this is a studio product? in one way, like Beloved, which came out in 1998, is, like, the prestige could not almost be higher, because it came from an award-winning uh, book, and had Oprah Winfrey's mm-hmm. big showcase of acting. Like, I mean, she had previously been, I believe, in The Color Purple, but this was one where I think her studio was helped put up the money for it, and so it had this huge amount of attention ladled on it, 
the film deals with a small family that lives in Ohio in the post-Civil War era, gets a visitor, played by Danny Glover, and as he goes and lives for a while in this house, which uh, has uh, a mother, Sethi, played by Oprah Winfrey, and then her daughter, Denver, a new person enters into the picture. And that's where things get quite strange. <laughs> For me, it, it, it doesn't connect to me as a great film. It certainly connects to me as a very good film. And I think... And I have no real basis for this because I haven't read the book, Beloved. But I, I do know its reputation. Toni Morrison's book won the, the Pulitzer Prize. It's one of these books that's not just, in the modern era, that's not just considered uh, a book but considered literature. And knowing how different books and films can be, and, and just assuming from the strange structure of the film that the book is probably got an even uh, stranger structure, more literary, more complicated, I wonder if he didn't try so hard to be faithful to the book and capture the structure of the book that he didn't adjust to making it its, its own movie. I want to jump in here and and just say um, that this is like something wild. This is like I want to kind of put this into two parts because there I feel there is a way where Beloved works much better than if you had um, might at first think. It kind of reminds me about how many times have you seen a movie and you go, oh, this movie would have been perfect if it just ended five <laughs> minutes sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. In this case, for Beloved, I, by accident, I think I found a way of looking at the movie, which might, which people might get more enjoyment out of it, which is that I, ha- it was interrupted. I saw half of it, and then I had to see the next, uh, the next part of it the following day. And I came, and I found that, like, the second half of the movie is much stronger than the first half, for a very specific reason. If you watch the movie for the first time, if you can go and, like, just don't Watch the first five minutes. It becomes a better movie. And if you if you just skip the first half hour, it becomes better still. Hmm. Now, we're going to deal into some spoiler things right now. So, three, two, one, spoilers. One of the main problems with the movie is there is a, a person who is the apparition, a kind of zombie-like physical apparition of the dead child of Oprah Winfrey's Sethi character. But she the, ki- killed in her youth. Right. She had, yeah. right, she had killed so... Rather so, than let her be brought back into slavery. That's, that's right. But the problem, a big problem in the movie, is that she is actually already in the beginning of the movie as a ghost. And then a half hour into it, she shows up physically. And so the same threat that she is to the family is there, but the reactions are totally different. Because Oprah and Denver... And uh, the Denver character are, well, they've reached accommodation with the ghost. But suddenly, when it's a physical person, they're all weirded out by what she's doing. It's, it's a very weird effect. It's like as if like you're watching a horror movie about a werewolf, and everyone's fine with it. And it turns out halfway through, it's actually a vampire werewolf. It's like, oh, no, now we have to be scared. <laughs> it's like, no, no, it just completely does not work for me. And that first five minutes especially 
it is some deranged Sam Raimi, cra- batshit, <laughs> crazy, grindhouse uh, delirium. Which, by the way, it's a perfectly fine way to spend a, uh, two hours in a movie theater. But that's not what the rest of the movie does. Mm-hmm. All that level of seriousness that you describe is not there in that first five minutes, which you get this imp- So it sends an audience on completely the wrong foot to thinking that they're going to have this... Especially if you came into the movie expecting I'm seeing a prestigious film, right. and you're seeing like this just pure madness on, <laughs> on screen, right? It's, it sends the audience on exactly the wrong perspective. Yeah. In fact, it's ironically, this first five minutes is more of a spoiler of the movie than anything the last <laughs> part of the movie would do. Yeah, I mean, I think the perspective is the my main problem with it. The feel, movie feels all over the place in terms of its point of view. It could have been, benefited greatly from being more centralized and focused and having, like having Oprah Winfrey's uh, daughter become the main character and filtering everything through her eyes. Yes. Um, really just kind of simplified a little bit. That's, that's kind of where I, that's kind of where the movie was losing me the last time I watched it. Um, granted, I was also really tired, so I, I may not have, <laughs> maybe it wasn't, maybe I'm not being fair, but. I, I think there are some really creepy scenes. I think there are some really unsettling scenes, some scenes that really are moving and that really work. And Brad, what you were saying about Demi's, uh, you know, need to be faithful to the source material. I, I don't have any insight on that. Um, but I do know the, I do know the movie was, the screenplay was co-written by Richard Lagravenes, who is known for, um, adapting movie uh, adapting screenplays from books that are not very good and making them better so <laughs> there's might be something to that right. and i can tell i think i know it's i hmm. I'm, I'm a fan of his work and i and i think i can tell which scenes he wrote i have a feeling he wrote the scenes between oprah winfrey and danny glover which have this really beautiful i, I think their relationship is really the the heart and soul of the film and is really kind of beautiful on its own what do you think of Sandy Newton's performance in this film? You know, as as an actress, she she did her job. The character is a grown version of a baby. Um, I was kind of joking to myself when I watched yeah. it. There should be a buddy film between her character in this and <laughs> Jodie Foster's character in Nell. Oh but. yeah, there, there is that. Um, <laughs> oh, that's but, sweet. <laughs> but but so so given the parameters of of what the character is, she, she made the correct acting decisions in portraying a grown baby mm-hmm. who can learn to speak and 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 take in things in a very limited way but again this is possibly something that works better on the page than on screen yeah. i think conceptually the what the idea of what this spirit is supposed to represent is incredibly difficult to render to the point where even uh, a fine actress like uh, Thandie Newton can do her job, and yet it it still for me doesn't work. <laughs> well, it's the case where the it's a case where the structure lets her down and her mm-hmm. character down. Um, you have a half hour of ghost stuff, including Danny Glover fighting some ghost for pushing a table, and then and then. The movie takes its sweet, sweet, sweet time giving all sorts of incredibly weird details for Thandie Newton's character without you realizing that that's why. Like, she has to drool 
a lot. <laughs> she has to defecate on a bed. Mm-hmm. Um, she has this very, very raspy yet high pitched voice, which is explained later because the when as as a child the baby's throat had been cut. The movie takes a long while for you to get to that sequence, and and you're getting this behavior, weird behavior, for minutes at a time with no explanation. And I think actually it ties into your point that about like that you said earlier on Demi's technique. Demi is asked to do a lot of strange, disturbing, and unconventional things from and. Demi is a filmmaker to me who's very, very good at like looking at like particular details about humanity. But when you're trying to transcend humanity or go beside or or do these metaphorical things, like he's less adequately equipped for the task. And I and you see him trying up a storm, like he's doing things like slow motion. When people have a dream sequence, it's superimposed on the walls of the house. And almost all of those moves to me fail completely. Mm-hmm. Like, you're supposed to, instead of feeling for Thandie Newton's character, you're like, why am I looking at a person drooling all over her table and, and shoving food out, and spitting food out of her mouth? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's, it, the movie has not laid the groundwork and it's not depicted in a way that makes you want to believe in what's, what's happening. Especially because of the theme, the seriousness of what the character represents. Right. Which is basically the result, the, the fruits of slavery, which is this, this tragedy that this young mother who would grow, grow up to be Oprah Winfrey would rather kill her family. And she attempts to kill the rest of her children too, rather than uh, be subjective to the kind of uh, inhuman treatment. And then, much like the horror movie trope of the uh, Indian burial ground ghosts coming back for revenge, we then take the, we then have to take this very, very tragic uh, slavery parable and watch it play out in this strange performance. And so again, it's so ambitious. I, I, I actually really respect Demi for what he tried to do here, but it, it doesn't connect. It, it, it doesn't work. I think a really nice comparison that could help people appreciate or get them to like and see what the movie has to offer more would be this would be a nice double feature with the Baba Duke. Because I think the I think what Beloved does best in the second half is something that Baba du- the Baba Duke does really well all the way through, which is the sense that it uses horror and horrific imagery to depict a moment of intense pain and anguish, a soul-shattering moment of extreme suffering, and it uses horror to tell that story and and it's and the Baba Duke also has people who are put through the ringer mentally but also physically like through like like the through violence and blood and and even vomit at times but it doesn't come across as forced at all in the Baba Duke but exactly natural extension of what the characters are going through and looked at in that light the journey of the beloved character the uh, the character named beloved who was this manifestation just really does come across. You feel more for Th- for Thandie Newton's portrayal when you look at, and also for Oprah Winfrey's portrayal. She's also really going all out, right? But it's in a 
But the structure kind of like lets her down to like to not put you in a position where you're aware of like all that's going on through her through her head, you know? Yeah, I, and um, I there's a movie out right now called It Comes at Night that also kind of accomplishes that too <laughs> in half the time of Beloved. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I agree, Brad. This is a really ambitious film and one that I I don't want to like deter people from viewing. I think uh, there's a lot of people who love this movie. Um, who, who do connect with it. And it's a really strange and interesting film to come out of a big studio. Yeah. And, this is, uh, and, and it bombed. I mean, it didn't, you know, nobody went to see it and it didn't get, uh, the Oscar, uh, accolades that it, the studio was hoping for. Well, this um, was a but, case where, like, people had, this is a case where Oscar bait became a landmine. Yeah. People expect a certain level of propriety. Right. I mean, I think even in Philadelphia, people made, um, pointed out how in this movie which is supposed to show how much you should care for homosexual people they did not even allow for a kiss between um Antonio tom hanks's character Banderas. right yeah. and his partner yeah now of course in context at the time that was ve- that may have been thoughts to be a bridge too far but it wasn't going but this is not a movie where that was going to happen yeah and and this this movie for all beloved i mean for all its faults is a movie that will literally have people get into the get into the muck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the one other thing I want to point out is that it it has this moment halfway through, which also like upends the structure because it's like this kind of like fably kind of thing about how Denver was conceived, and it's working in all this symbolic imagery where she has to go cross across the river into Ohio, and through this white lady who appears out of the forest. And it's so magically helpful. She might as well have been played by Melanie Griffith from Something Wild. Yeah, that's a strange scene. You're right. Yeah, about it that. is. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, yeah. and which, which, by the way, if the movie was kind of quote unquote about that, that might have worked. But the movie is working on all these different tones, mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't let an audience, like at least on first viewing, appreciate what it's trying to do. I think once you see what beloved the character is all about. Like then the bugs, the butterflies, the gravestone, all it makes more sense. And I think the movie would be richer if you didn't like Beloved at first. Check it out again and, and, mm-hmm. look, and look at what the second half has mm-hmm. to offer. I think actually, well, actually it would be more rewarding. I'm singing this borrowed tune I took from the Rolling Stones So Demi probably at this point in his career may have had enough of such uh, serious, heavy topics, but uh, he has not had enough of Thandie Newton. So, uh, Colin, you uh, know about our next uh, entry here. Yeah, I mean, this now we're kind of coming into sort of the least interesting part of Demi's, uh, the least interesting phase, his remake phase. Uh, so this is a remake of uh, Charade. Uh, and now it's called The Truth About Charlie. And Charade was a, a comedy thriller with Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant uh, that uh, you know, a lot of people love. And um, you get the sense from... Uh, so I'll, I'll just backtrack. Thandie Newton is in the Audrey Hepburn role, and Mark Wahlberg is in the Cary Grant role. That's a problem. Jonathan Demme really just wants to play again. 
Uh, he is not out to make a prestigious Oscar bait kind of film. He's kind of, it seems like he's kind of done with that. He wants to go back and make the kind of movies he made in the eighties. He wants to make another something wild, another married to the mob, a movie that, you know, has a, has a beat. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, it must have just kind of felt like a relief to kind of just jump in and have some fun and make some interesting stylistic choices, uh, with a cast that is really game to try anything. Um, unfortunately, it's still Mark Wahlberg at the center of it. And that's, um, and at the center of a film that, uh, has a plot that I'm just not, I'm not into these kinds of plots. And I know they're, they're sort of Hitchcockian in a way, you know, about the, your, your husband was actually a former CIA agent and those people that are trying to kill you are actually this and this and I'm really this and, and ever, you're not sure who's who and what's what. And, uh, in, in this, in the, in the case of this kind of, kind of comedy action film, I'm just, it just, it's just not my kind of comedy, I guess. Right. I think um, you've like actually nailed what, Mar- uh, what Marky Mark's screen credit should be. It's still Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> I don't hate Mark Wahlberg. I, I actually, I mean, I think there's, there are roles that in which he is the perfect person to play it. And I don't mean just idiots, but I mean, like, I think, he, I don't think he's a bad actor. I just think he, the, he's, he is, there are limits to the kinds of films he should be in and right. the kind keep, of roles keep, he should have. Keep but, him in, uh, The Departed and, uh, uh, high heart Huckabees, you know. Yeah, like or uh, the Ted movies. Yeah. Like, I think he's a great comedic actor. I think he's a really funny comedian. I think his comic timing is is excellent, and of course Boogie Nights. But um, but he is just there is no chemistry between him and Thandie Newton. Thandie Newton's a great Audrey Hepburn. Right. Um, she's terrific in this movie, and she just the the camera just loves her, and you can tell Demi loves her. Um. And you can tell Jonathan Demi, you can tell he is having fun making this film. He really is. I mean, he is having fun with the camera, doing a lot more steady cam than he's ever done before, trying all these canted angles, uh, using music uh, in a way that he hasn't used in, in over a decade. Uh, the movie ends with um, uh, a, a character, a, a sort of a non-inconsequential character, singing to the camera, just like something wild. Um, you know, it, it, there's a sequence that end uh, towards the end of the film that's uh, cut to a Feelys song. So it's like Demi really wants to come back to his roots in a way. Um, unfortunately, it just falls flat. It just there's no life. Uh, there's just no reason to care about these characters. They're just kind of that. That's where everything just kind of falls flat, and the the plot is just too overly convoluted and and just there's um it it's really hard to get engaged with it. Do you find that like um this is a case where the casting like dictated like if he, if Demi had had more of a choice in who would he pick for the leading person like that that he might have picked a more interesting character actor that could have um given more character than the one who eventually starred um I don't know I think I mean there was this is about 2002 so Mark Wahlberg is very much I think he's. I think Mark Wahlberg is trying to prove himself a leading man in, in various degree to various degrees. Here, he, he's he's sort of, um, you know, he he was a star at this point. He's been in a lot of successful films at this point, and I think he wanted he and Demi thought it would be interesting to try him out as a romantic leading man, a la Cary Grant. I honestly don't know where what happened with the casting of this film, but 
uh, it is the big problem. And Tim Robbins also has a, a significant role in this film. And you can tell he wants to have fun with this. He wants to bring something really eccentric and interesting to it, but he just can't figure out how to do it. Right. And the, nobody's helping him. Yeah, because the original is nothing is just fun yeah it's uh you know it's sometimes been called the the best hitchcock movie hitchcock never made it's from stanley donnan and uh in the mode of uh north by northwest or so you know you're you're in kind of a rough territory trying to remake a film like that but not quite as rough as the the next remake he's going to attempt uh of a stone cold classic the manchurian candidate and the CIA said, son, you'll never be a hero. Your flying days are done. It's time for you to go home now. Stop sniffing that smoking gun. The original Manchurian Candidate was actually embargoed because it came similar, close enough to the Kennedy assassinations, so they felt it was way too close to home at the time mm-hmm. yeah it got eventually got released mm-hmm. in 1988 right and when it did finally people got to see it they finally realized what an amazing film this uh, john frankenheimer film was starring uh, frank sinatra and and, and, and janet lee mm-hmm. um and uh and it dealt with uh cold war issues of uh, uh after the korean war um soldiers being brainwashed and uh there are a, a, a number of very fun twists in the movie that I, I won't reveal here because we're not talking about that movie. But one of the criticisms I have about the remake is all the potential uh, twists that we knew were available if you'd seen the original are pretty much given away right at the beginning. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I honestly don't have too much to say about this movie because I only saw it once when it first came out. And I meant to catch up with it again before this podcast. And there's were just way too many demi films to catch up right, with right. leading up to today. And it just had to. It kept moving down the list. Of priorities. I'm going to give Didn't it even credit. Have a chance to play a little solitaire. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. I'm going to give it credit on on one front, uh, which is the the movie does it isn't. It isn't such a faithful remake, whereas, you know, Manchuria is a province of China. In this film, Manchuria is a uh, U.S. Uh, corporation who ah. wants to uh, buy and, and brainwash its uh, politicians. It also changes a little bit of the focus of character because uh, Lawrence Harvey in the original had kind of a thankless uh, role, very stoic as as the Manchurian candidate. And his role here is played by Lev Shriver, who actually delivers a wonderful performance and shifts our focus from the stars of the film, uh, Denzel Washington and uh, Meryl Streep, into what in the original was a was a less showy role. But 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 here, basically, Lev Shriver uh, steals the film. And strangely enough, and and. I'm a, I, I love Meryl Streep, and she does consistently wonderful work, but not really here. Here she is, I think, giving one of her weaker performances and um, just does nothing but chew scenery from uh, beginning to end. And uh, 
uh, anyone who saw Angela Lansbury play the same character right. in the 62 version knows that there's a lot more that can be uh, brought forward. Hmm, interesting. I mean, I hadn't had a chance to see the Manchurian Candidate remake, but I kind of felt that Angela Lansbury was meant to be this kind of monstrous caricature that gets even more monstrous due to the certain events that happened over the course of the movie that I don't want to spoil here. Um, in a quick, in a quick tangent, the Lawrence Harvey's performance in the original Manchurian Candidate, I swear to God, you guys, it's the inspiration for Seymour Skinner from The Simpsons. Hmm. He looks the same. He dresses the same. He's very, very stuck up. He's very humorless. And boy, those mother issues are... <laughs> uh, but that's interesting how, like, Street, because I think Devil Wears Prada came a little later, right? And so her, yeah. her, her scenery-chewing delivery has had yet to right. be manifest and that was a, a that was a comedy and this is this is not you know there's a there, there's a way to slowly build to the uh kind of character that that streep is portraying really menacing uh whatnot while maintaining a facade but again the problem with this movie is, is uh, uh, it, it actually does not take the uh card game motif from the original but it shows all its cards right at the beginning. So by Nicely the time we, so by the time we're supposed to be surprised, the surprises are revealed. So at this point, I mean, this is kind of an interesting time because he did two remakes, and they were relative. Not, one was not very successful. One was moderately kind of sort of successful, but you could tell it was just it just wasn't fitting him. Um, and so he had been making this documentary for the, all these years called The Agronomist, which, which is a film about a radio show host in Haiti, uh, at a, a time of dictatorship. Um, and as guy's name was Jean Dominique, uh, he was a human rights activist and radio journalist. And, um, he was kind of the voice of the people at a time when they didn't really have a voice at a time when he you know, could when when the, the radio station could have been shut down at any any moment, um, and it's kind of interesting. I went back and watched it again, and it is pretty relevant to today, and in, in many ways because it is about the persecution of a journalist, um, who uh, who is exposing truth, no matter um, you know, uh, you know that, that even though it is like a, a threat to people in power. Um, so, you know, Demi's been making this movie for, you know, just kind of as a, like a side project while doing these, you know, Hollywood remakes. And it's a really interesting piece of work. It kind of documents the rise and fall of these dictatorships and, you know, the, the political struggles that was going on in Haiti at the time. And with Jean Dominique as kind of the, the through line. Um, and who, you know, very compelling character. So after The Agronomist, you know, the Manchurian Candidate came out, I think, r- roughly the same year, maybe the same time. I'm not really sure the timeline on that. Uh, and then a few years later, he did a similar kind of documentary called Jimmy Carter, Man from Plains, uh, in which he followed Jimmy Carter uh, around on this book tour for um, this controversial book that he wrote about Palestine. Uh, it was called Palestine Peace, Not Apartheid. Basically, just Jimmy Carter kind of defending himself, um, you know, during this book tour, and uh, it was kind of a fly on the wall documentary, you know, following him going on Anderson Cooper and um, you know, or, or Wolf Blitzer, I mean, 
and uh, just kind of taking heat for his views on Palestine. This is something that is not often uh, mentioned in Demi's filmography is that he was a very political minded person. You know, his movies did have a, um, he was politically active in this sense of, um, of telling these stories. And Also, during this period, he did his first of three Neil Young films. Uh, he became sort of Neil Young's personal biographer. Uh, you know, he'd always been a Neil Young fan. There's a Neil Young song in Philadelphia. Um, but this was a, a concert film, um, his first since 1996, which he did a Robin Hitchcock concert film called Storefront Hitchcock, which was a, a you know very small concert film in which Robin Hitchcock was playing in this New York storefront while passersby are walking by um but this is more of a a grand creative choice yeah and it's and 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 robin hitchcock was a a musician uh and storyteller much in the same way spalding gray you know is a storyteller so but then the neil young heart of gold was kind of this return to form for him in a way as a concert uh documentary filmmaker and and um and biographer so this is neil young uh touring uh in support of his album prairie wind and it's uh, he had just been treated for a brain aneurysm, and he you know this is uh, you know this is Neil Young forty well forty years at least uh, into his career, um, or maybe fifty years I'm not really sure, um, and it's it's a beautiful document a concert film and documentary about a guy who's was on the verge of of, of death but is is nowhere near finished doing what he wants. With what he wants to do and what he wants to accomplish in his life, I don't it, think I've ever seen a more golden concert yes, film. Yes, yes, ever. It is just it, it almost like you could almost get a Terrence Malick uh, side side credit in that like everything is it has imbued with this like gold with this gold light, and even when the sometimes uh, the colors are blue, but it's a super bright blue. Mm-hmm. It, it carries on the traditions of uh, stop making sense. But but reapplies it uh, to a different uh, kind of music, and uh, bias alert here. I I love Neil Young, so this film was uh, luxurious for me. Um, it chronicled one of his best albums uh, of the two mm-hmm. thousands, uh, Prairie Wind, and also the uh, final days of a uh, classic Nashville uh, landmark, the Ryman Theater, which this would be one of, if not the last performances before some obstructions made it not uh, quite the theater it, it used to be. And that's explained in a quick prologue, but the movie is, is full of music. The first part of the film is almost uh, all of uh, 
Prairie Wind, which is a, a deeply personal album. It's Neil Young. Those of you who, who are fans know that he can uh, get in his crazy horse electric mode and really uh, tear the roof off. He's not doing this here. He, he's in harvest mode here, working with Nashville musicians, singing folky uh, acoustic songs with uh, Emmylou Harris uh, as one of the background vocalists. And then uh, because life is good, he ends with a number of his uh, big hits of that type from Harvest, from Harvest Moon, from Comes a Time. It's just a pleasure of a concert film and and like you said it, 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 it's got those visuals to enhance what Neil Young's bringing musically. Well I have to say my bias is that I like Neil Young's electric stuff but do not like his acoustic stuff so um is that why I like the movie half as much as you do? <laughs> Not particularly. This is a case to me where, like, you can think of editing a movie in two different ways. Like the micro-editing, like shot to shot, and then just the general placement of scene to scene. How do those fit? And I think... It, just like how some you can say sometimes people know the words but not the music... Know the notes but not the music. I kind of think this... You looking at Heart of Gold you see the micro-editing is still as cool as it is in Stop Making Sense. It, the cuts the cuts, and the changes in perspective are, are just as interesting and in a way that draws you in to want to go closer. There's, it's so much closer than it is in Stop Making Sense to Neil Young's face. And you can see all, not as they, Indiana Jones said, both the years and the mileage <laughs> on, on him and his, and his life through it. But I don't think it does as much in the macro sense. Like, Stop Making Sense had the techniques that matched song by song to express what the songs are. And, and Colin, as you said, it expands on it to show, like, the perspectives get bigger and bigger the more people are introduced in the earlier film. But here, it's a bunch of all-studio pros who are in there from the get-go. There's no dramatic arc to the proceedings. It's a great start with a great song ends of a great song there's no real transitions to go and make things a grander statement and in the same way there's no case where the framing of the shots like are tied in you know i i would think because neil young is so fundamentally different a performer than david byrne the kind of quick perspective changes and stop making sense they're kind of still happening in Heart of Gold, but they don't fit Neil Young as well as they do for David Byrne or for the Talking Heads. Maybe a little more tracking shots, maybe a little more slow zooms. I'm, I'm just suggesting things, but it's less of a perfect match that I found in Stop Making Sense. So that's where I put it like a, a 50% rate. Well, I, I think it's guilty as charged uh, of not being as good as Stop Making Sense, which uh, I think we, we've kind of agreed is the, the height of what a concert film can possibly achieve. So while not quite achieving that, I, I, I think Demi is much more suited and, and adjusted uh, the camera to what Neil Young is doing uh, a, a little more than, than than you're suggesting. In fact, there are certain moments uh, where we get that are so intimate, where we get close-ups of the instruments and uh, and and go across the stage. Or there's a in the comes a time number. He actually has uh, the camera on stage with them so that you see. Everyone uh, in 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 the band uh, getting their own. Uh, 
the, their own shot, much like the supporting musicians and and stop making sense. Got um, uh, Demi here is still interested in the band. Uh, as well as in Neil. So yes, it's different. Neil Young's a different kind of artist than the Talking Heads, and 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 the results are not going to be as energetic and kinetic because it's it, you know it, it's more uh, intimate. I think actually, ironically, the greatest moment in that movie is to me is echo is great because it echoes the start of Stop Making Sense. That there's a scene that's just a static shot of Neil Young playing a song to an empty hall. And he himself is off in the corner. Yes. And it mm-hmm. ends with him slowly putting on his hat and packing his guitar. And I think that is amazing. And least, I didn't get a chance to see the other two of his films. Uh, how do you think those compare with Heart of Gold? Uh, I've only seen one of them, and I'm not sure which one it was that I saw. <laughs> I saw it at the Music Box Theater when it came out. Um, because the other, the, I think it was Journeys, um, a trunk show. I think I, I don't think I saw. I think that's one that's were really hard to find. Um, it was, it was not as good as Heart of Gold, not as personal, not as um, fulfilling. I, th- I think Heart of Gold is a really moving film, and I'm, I'm a casual Neil Young fan. I don't like own a lot of Neil Young albums. I like him, I admire him, but. <clears throat> uh heart of gold i i think it it didn't matter to me that i wasn't a huge fan i was still moved by it because i think there's a good story there i think there's a good interesting character biography going on there that you're watching a guy who is nowhere who who uh, conventional conventional wisdom would dictate he's in the twilight of his career but he's not and uh and i i find that i find that very moving i think i think that i i'm glad that demi captured that moment in his career I was also not able to catch uh, Trunk Show, which I will continue to look for. But I did did see uh, Neil Young Journeys, um, which, uh, especially compared to Heart of Gold, uh, was a, a disappointment. This is a chronicle of Neil Young solo set, no band, just Neil. Of course, the the songs are excellent. They're they're going to be. The, this was a tour in support of an album called uh, Le Noise. There's a lot of solo guitar work going on, but for some reason, Demi felt the need to place the camera in strange places. Yeah. And so at one point, he has the camera actually uh, on the mic that Neil is singing into as he's playing piano, and you get this terrible close-up. You're closer to him than, than really you should be. Yeah. You're huh. up his nose. You're in his tonsils. Wow. It's a really strange shot. And there's also way too many sequences away from the concert where basically Neil Young is taking us on a tour of his hometown and the old ranch in which he grew up with and we see his brother and and it was one it would have been one thing if in like in Heart of Gold it was uh, just the prologue but this happens throughout the movie and uh, so so Journeys I think is, is definitely not the movie Heart of Gold is still still if you're a Neil Young completist you're you're not gonna regret seeing Neil Young perform, but it's but but Heart of Gold is the story.
So all this documentary work, I think, is what makes his next narrative film so interesting, which is uh, Rachel Getting Married. Rachel Getting Married is a story about a character played by Anne Hathaway as one of the darkest of black sheep of the family coming home because her sister is about to get is about to get married. She has a lot of issues that she's bringing along and some are dealing with the fact that she was not the maid of honor of this particular wedding despite the fact she was just released out of a clinic very recently. The bulk of the movie is involves the different events around this wedding ceremony, uh, a look about the different uh, people who are attending the wedding, the her relationship between her sister, her father and her mother who have been who have been separated and some incidents in her past that have like fractured relations with all four of them in different in different ways. For me, I was very surprised when I saw this film because the last thing I saw expected when I go see a Jonathan Demi movie would be a John Cassavetes movie, and this to me is exactly a Cassavetes movie. It has that Cassavetes like excess of emotion, but it also has that Cassavetes like frenetic energy. Uh, like the handheld is not; it's not just like done to just make things unsettling. It's it's jarring. It's an imposition about characters. And people imposing themselves and being put in awkward situations. And it also has the exuberance of a Cassavetes film about how they, these people are just trying to embrace things as much as they can. And it's also done in this very close up where characters' faces are literally moving in and out of the frame. Like it is, um, uh, uh, it's very, it's quite a shock to me to see, to literally see it, to see a guy who had such a kind of an open feel make things so intense and, uh, Short of actually showing the nostrils like the Neil Young movie you were describing, you know. Well, this is kind of two movies in one because you you have the main plot line, which uh, to the extent that it is Cassavetes-ish, but that might be because so many films since Cassavetes ha- has taken on that style. Uh, there's practically a genre that uh, deals with uh, with family strife, and I think this one does it uh, particularly well. But then there's a second film, which is basically a fly-on-the-wall pseudo-documentary of, of this wedding through the use of, of, of musicians and uh, various uh, friends and hangers-on. We're observing in non-central-to-the-plot roles, and so we're basically not just going through the plot, we're also seeing this wedding come together, and... Uh, I don't know. For me, the I was I, I was more interested in the characters than in the ambiance that was created. Although I did I didn't hate it. I, I I but 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 there was so much strength. I thought in Anne Hathaway's performance, who for some reason I guess some people don't like. That's a thing. I have no problem with Anne Hathaway, but also two uh, performers really steal the show here uh, for me. One is uh, Bill Irwin. Who is uh, generally a uh, a, a, a comic uh, actor who tends to have these bit roles and wacky things in uh, in, in in a really um, interesting role as, as her father, who basically wants everything to be all right. He wants to uh, he he thinks he can fix the family, even though his daughters are remarkably damaged. Uh, and then you have Deborah Winger 
proving that we have had a huge loss by not having more Deborah Winger, who is just thunderously wonderful uh, as uh, as as the mother who is uh, the, the the father is since remarried. So the mother is kind of out of the picture and only returning to the family fold because of the wedding. And there are some dramatic fireworks that happen between Deborah Winger and, and, and Anne Hathaway that, that is incredibly powerful. Winger's talent is, yes, beyond dispute. And and you're you're so right, Brad, when you see her. And what she does in the role, like the way she's able to do all these layers of like, like of a whole history of how she has to deal with two dramatically different daughters, dramatic in both senses of the word, and with her and with her now ex-husband, and all done like in this incredibly subtle and very naturalistic manner is amazing to behold. I do want to point out of Irwin's particular gift to the movie. He does something that comic actors, like sometimes comic actors do really great in drama. But he does something very special, I think. He does a comic role. He's a comic, he's known for comic roles. But he actually takes the comic persona and tries to apply it in yes. this harsh mm-hmm. family environment. He wants to use his comedic skill, his skills at smoothing things over, making people feel better. He wants that's a tool for him to make some more accommodation in the family relationship. And that's one of the many, many things I think Rachel getting married does absolutely right in terms of like showing the kind of complex relations between these families like these these aren't people who have simple things that are shout they're shouting at each other there's all this underground stuff that is manifesting you see a corner of it here and a corner of it there yeah and this is something that demi has always excelled at um is the family dynamic relationship not so much you don't see it as much in his feature films but a lot of his television work he did uh, some episodes of enlightened uh, this great show with laura dern that mike white created and uh another tv show called trying times in the late 80s he did a a a little episode with rosanna arquette about a dysfunctional family it kind of had a meet the parents sort of storyline to it Ah. um and uh god that's worth seeking out if you can find that uh david byrne is in it and it's just one of the most craziest performances ever um (laughs) and but uh and in this film is uh he gets to sort of do that on a on a on a more grander scale um and i i totally agree i mean i think one of the strongest moments in the film is the scene in which deborah winger is trying to leave the wedding uh she's trying to do it in a very sort of mundane sort of polite kind of way but you can tell she just wants she just wants to leave her family it just wants doesn't want to have anything more to do with this it's exhausting to her and you can tell just that rachel is just offended by this notion but can't say anything yeah. she has to she has to play along and when the three of them rachel and the mom and uh, the anne hathaway character finally hug each other demi gives each one of them a close-up in the hug that reveals so much. It says so much without having to say anything. Yes. It's a, one of his best moments as a visual storyteller. Yeah. And and uh, the screenplay is incredibly brave in what you say so much. It, But it goes beyond what even, like, conventional, like, thoughtful takes on the matter. Because it deals with, like, a, a personal tragedy. And there's cases where people are assigning blame to each other for this tragedy in different proportions that... Mm-hmm. And the guilt 
and repercussions of those accusations just reflect on each other and and like cause people to be- cause what could have been otherwise good people to behave in horrible manners. But it gives you the explanation about it, like how how some of it is like them being aware of it, and some of it's not. And it's so re- it's so really forthright in how like these very touchy subjects are brought on brought out into the open. And it's also, I mean, just this is for me a re- Demi's real return to form as a narrative filmmaker. I think it's a, it was I considered it his best film since Something Wild at the time. Because I, I just, it was a pleasure to see him working with a screenplay that was to his standards, finally. And, um, and going back to this, a lot of the things that are part of his trademark, his love of music, uh, casting, you know, bringing in, uh, uh, Robin Hitchcock for a cameo, um, Sister Carol East, who's the singer at the end of Something Wild, she comes back. Oh, that this. was her. Okay. Yeah, it was her. Um, uh, doing a musical performance over the closing credits, the violin, uh, the player, uh, which I thought was a really beautiful, beautiful melody that he was playing. Um, and of course, uh, the groom singing the Neil Young song during the ceremony, which I thought was really beautiful. And he's not an actor. He's a, uh, a singer from a band called, uh, TV, TV on, on the, the radio. radio. Yeah, yeah. And that's a thing that Demi has always done throughout his career is casting rock stars in, in acting roles. I mean, he cast Chris Isaac a lot. He cast David Byrne, like I said, in, in a movie. And, you know, he just, he, he, he likes doing that. I don't know uh, how he convinces some performers to do it, but he's got a real knack. He, he had a real knack for it. Um, and, uh, I love the wedding stuff. I really do. Because as somebody who's been in the wedding business, uh, this is one of of the most realistic wedding movies I've ever seen, uh, in terms of how a wedding plays out. Um, it seems a little really fanciful when you watch it. Like, how does this happen in this house? Uh, but it's happened. It has, the weddings like this do take place in people's right because as someone who who (laughs) isn't in the in in that world it struck me at at one point i was thinking how elaborate can this wedding get (laughs) yeah you'd be surprised at what people can pull off uh in this in that business but um and and i and i i enjoyed watching it kind of unfold and i loved that demi kind of took some time to just linger on it for a while because in spite of all these you know, with all these tragedies that are being brought up and all this family drama that's that's going on and, and how uh, um, uh, Anne Hathaway's character just kind of wants to have everyone stop and just be in her painful world, uh, life goes on. And, um, and, you know, the show must go on and the wedding must go on and, we, you know. The show uh, must go on. That's a yeah. nice, very bad things kind of attitude about <laughs> such an activity. I, I'm going to yeah. say, like, like I am a, I am kind of, my bias is against ostentatious type weddings. Like, mm-hmm. I very much have the attitude held by Billy Crystal's character in When Harry Met Sally is that you make this big show and engage in this just big elaborate thing so that everyone in the world can show how awesome and unique you're, you as are as a couple. And then 10 years later, you're fighting over a fucking coffee table. Yeah. <laughs> just like this inherently pompous, narcissistic activity of like, yeah, it's going to be all about you. And I found these sequences, to be fair, in the script wise, they are very mm-hmm. well placed. You get the you get the moments of impure drama done 
alternating with these sequences in a very nice way that doesn't really lend, that doesn't really send either one short. However, I feel that like those wedding sequences cannot be short enough. To me, they came across as like, as Demi's basic sweet 16 party to himself. A way of, ba- a way of showing off how enlightened a human being he is. I get this Aaron Sorkin sense how every character at the at rehearsal dinner is more clever and and worldly and um, uh, and sophisticated than the last person until of course it gets to, uh, until of course it gets to the Kim character and the whole spectacle is of a, such a great multicultural bent that I literally um, would have thought that if someone opened up a refrigerator, there would have been a traffic jam as people would have thought a, whole, a new Whole Foods had opened. Well, well look, you ha- and then you have the colorblind casting, which is consistent in Demi. It, it's something he really uh, cares about here. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess I'm kind of halfway between you guys on, on the wedding thing. It was... Uh, uh, the, I didn't necessarily object to it as I, I, I just liked the other part of the movie more. But the other thing it has a really keen insight uh, onto is the whole idea of, uh, of recovery and how uh, Anne Hathaway uses her recovery almost as a weapon. Very true. Uh, as yes. the two sisters basically vie for attention with um with rachel and her wedding and and kim and her recovery and 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 the entire thing erupts in this sibling rivalry that's right like the dynamics of the the family are inspired like there's a moment where um where they're having an argument the sisters are having an argument and rachel just says out of the blue, by the way, I'm pregnant. Yeah. And then causing the, the, the family, the rest of the family around, except for Kim to erupt. Oh my God. You know, and what in another movie would have been just this total like, hooray, this is just a moment of triumph. Yeah. It gets called out as an exact moment where she wants to get the upper hand and stop the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so she, ple- she actually uses it as a card. And the way that like it can be part of the change of dynamics is a really inspired, thoughtful, thoughtful note and like something that the movie does continually well when it deals with the family in the in in the non-wedding context ultimately i think if there was a way of splitting the difference between all our opinions i think there's a a scene exactly in the middle of rachel rachel getting married which people can use as a guide they're trying to figure out who sits where at the wedding and they have a big chessboard on a giant table and they use different like cartoon dogs and other figures (laughs) and they're and during their conversation, they're putting one dog here and another dog there. If you look at that and you just roll your eyes and go, oh, man, what a quirky bit of nonsense, you might want to be a little reluctant. But if you just go and go, oh, yeah, that's exactly how you got to arrange these things, like a big chessboard of relationships, then you will love Rachel getting married. Yeah, and I, I love this movie. Fair, I think that's a I fair uh, well, assessment. Uh, it's a little simplified, but I guess okay. know, there's there's, right. there's some truth to that, I guess. But uh, yeah, and 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 again, like <laughs> I've enough. I've been in the wedding business, so I'm watching it probably from a different point of view from well, uh, other people. Author- but a much more to be honest, <laughs> Talon, a much more authoritative view. Yeah, because I know I would have never imagined. Like I felt the elaboration was a little fanciful. But yeah. But apparently it happens. No, it's not. <laughs> Talk about right. fanciful situations. We get a, an upcoming... Um, the next movie after Rachel is about Meryl Streep as a rock star. Hey, 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 she was 
Yeah, Ricky and the Flash was his sort of last narrative uh, film to come from a big studio. Uh, Meryl Streep is in it. Rick Springfield is in it. Again, he's casting rock stars in in in, in dramatic <laughs> roles. Wow! And um, and she's kind of a has been rock star. I don't know. This is kind of a, more along the lines of Rachel getting married, although not nearly as as nuanced and not nearly as it's, it's more of a comedy. But it is. It does play. Demi is playing to one of his strengths again. Like I said, um, dysfunctional families and family dynamics, and which I think is is what I think makes the film work. Uh, the, the screenplay is by Diablo Cody, and oh, okay, um, and so. And, and I, I think it's, uh, I think it's an interesting film. I, I don't, I, a lot of people kind of dismissed it. I think I probably gave it more of a pass because I'm a fan <laughs> and, uh, I was kind of, you know, I want them, there's certain things that I want from a Jonathan Demi film when I watch a new one and, you know, I got most of what I want from a Jonathan Demi film. I think the ending is a little too simplistic. It's a little too cornball, a little too conventional. But I think Meryl Streep's uh, performance obviously is, makes it worth watching. I think the curiosity element of seeing Rick Springfield in a dramatic role is actually very satisfying. And I think there's, I think there's just there's enough good moments in this film. I haven't seen it since it came out. I, I didn't get a chance to revisit it, but I, I just remember being thinking it was it was satisfactory enough for a fan of Jonathan Demme's work. Not one of his greatest, but you know, nowhere near the bottom. Yeah, he, I, I'd go with sat- satisfactory for me too. It's got Meryl Streep, in, you know, in almost every scene, and here she is playing the kind of role she's not generally known for but strangely enough a role similar to Anne Hathaway's in mm-hmm. Rachel getting married yeah. uh basically in in both films you have uh the main character bursting into social situations well in this case not even in- invited and creating uh creating chaos also uh Meryl Streep's real life daughter uh plays her daughter it felt to me like it was if Rachel getting married got the Hollywood treatment. Right. There's notes for you. During this time, he was making, he made a concert documentary with Kenny Chesney. I haven't seen it, so I have nothing to say about it. Uh, he did a film called A Master Builder, which is basically fil- a filmed version of a play by Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory. And uh, it's part of the, there's a trilogy of films, My Dinner with Andre and Vanya on 42nd Street, that you can get in the Criterion Collection with that. Um, it was not great and i mean it was a play that was just basically should just stay a play it just couldn't demi couldn't really make it a a compelling case for it as a film it was very Um, cool that he was still looking towards different medium right and trying to see if they would work cinematically yeah i mean he was really he was still trying new things here but really his final film is uh justin timberlake and the tennessee kids which is a concert film of a justin timberlake concert and it's terrific in, of, of course, it helps that the show is really terrific, even if you're not a fan of Justin Timberlake. And I'm not a fan, like a huge fan of his music, but I loved watching this show. I loved watching it come to life. And, it, and it's, a, it's sort of that trademark demi uh, minimalism and uh, that he uses to film it. And it's unfortunate that the film went directly to Netflix and never got a theatrical release. That's super um, weird. because it, it, it is. It, it really should be seen on the big screen, if possible. 
Um, I mean, I guess it got a maybe maybe it got a bigger audience than it would have if it went theatrical, but it, the the visual sensibility of the film just sort of demands a big screen right because it's a big concert and i i am i am not a fan of justin timberlake so you know again the bias alert um you know the concert enjoyment of concert movies are going to depend on your enjoyment uh, of the artist but even uh putting that aside the uh what demi is capturing here is the the scale of a huge stadium pop show with all the special effects with all the uh stage work uh lasers everything that just uh makes uh you know a, a modern uh pop concert uh where you know cost is is not a factor and uh and he he actually breaks precedent with some of his earlier concert stuff because we do see a lot of the audience here mm-hmm. mostly because Timberlake is far more interested in interacting with the audience yeah and that's and that's uh, and you also see a little bit behind the scenes stuff, off stage stuff before the show, uh, that makes it more personal and makes it more, uh, engaging for the, for somebody who's an uninitiated or who, who isn't really a fan. I'm a fan of Timberlake as an actor. I think he's great. Oh, and Black um, Snake Moan, especially. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's, right. yeah. I mean, uh, and I think he is a great, I mean, obviously he's a great performer. I mean, he's, a, he's a triple threat of, you know, singer, dancer, actor. And great looking guy. I mean, he's, he can't deny Justin Timberlake has everything every guy wants. Um, but, uh, and, and Demi, and I, and I love that this is, I mean, I hate that this is his last film because I want more Jonathan Demi films, but I like this is a good one for him to go out on, um, because it is a celebration. It's a party. Yep. And Jonathan Demi was a director who loved people he loved life he loved every uh, he he loved his characters whenever he was interviewed he always had a smile on his face he was always enthusiastic and he always uh you can tell by watching his films that he was an actor's director he was a cinematographer's director he was a he was a friend of the editor he was you know it was it was always a collaboration and there's a reason why a lot of actors come back and work for him over and over again. There's a reason why he is loyal to his stock of uh, character actors like Tracy Walter and China and Charles Napier and Kenneth Ut and you know, the list goes on because he's just was that infectious, enthusiastic director who listened to other people and loved their ideas. And, you know, I think, Doing a, a big Justin Timberlake concert film is, I think, is a good way to sort of close his career and, and leave something positive in the world. That's very well said, Colin. I just would want to add on that, that it's a great credit to him that he looks at somebody who has made a whole different generation of music that even the kind of like cosmopolitan music that he was inter- that Demi himself was interested in in the 80s and to be able to still deliver a level of energy and enthusiasm and creative choices towards making a film of, of this new generation's music is a total credit towards Demi and the spirit that informed so many of his films. Mm-hmm. I'm very uh, happy, Colin, that you were able to join us for Thank this like, exploration of 
uh, this filmmaker. Obviously, it's going to be pretty extensive, all the different <laughs> styles of films that he did. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, and going back and watching a lot of them, some of them for the very first time over the last couple months has been hugely rewarding. Uh, when he died, I was too busy to have a little marathon at home of the, the movies of his that I loved. I, I was just, I did not have time because we were running, we were putting the film festival together. So now that I've, you know, the last month or so that I've had time to go back and watch it, it's just been a real treat. And I'm still going to go back and watch a bunch. <laughs> because I, you know, I, I'm on a roll now. Yeah, you know? <laughs> this conversation I can definitely say has inspired me to both go back and forth on on Demi, back to his first movies with Corman, this Caged Heat to see the most inspiring uh, uh, women in prison movie, and now to look for I want to see the Justin Timberlake and be on the lookout for Buzz Kilman in the lower <laughs> corners. <laughs> no, you're really getting obscure now, but I know exactly what you're talking about. That's that's a strange, that's a scary thing. You really have to know Chicago radio to know what we're talking about when we yeah. talk about Buzz Kilman. Thanks for you guys out for listening to our exploration for the. Uh, works of Jonathan Demi. If you have questions or comments uh, about his uh, work, feel free to give us a notice. We're available online at iTunes at Directors Club Podcast. Uh, I have our on our website at directorsclubpodcast.com and you can email your comments, requests, and criticisms over to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And seriously, if you have a lead on the director's cut of Swing Shift, please message me on facebook i would i would dying to find this oh and colin by by that token how can people reach you at facebook and and in your many many other ventures well um i'm on facebook just uh, colin Suter, um and uh you, i'm also on twitter at colin underscore Suter, multiheadproductions.net if you want to know more about my short films um, I'm also, you can hear me on WGN radio every week, uh, every Monday morning, uh, with Nick DeGilio and Eric Childress when we review the new movies. Um, also on WHPK, uh, with Sergio Mims once a month. And, um, also write about short films for RogerEbert.com, uh, the first Tuesday of every month. We are keeping you from five things from <laughs> by talking yeah. about Ricky and the Flash, aren't yeah. we? <laughs> We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate being the chosen guest for this for this filmmaker. It means a lot to me. So, oh yeah, and I mean, and it was great to be able to get your insight on on this filmmaker and and on his film. So, um, we're really cool you were able to be able to join us. Thank you. All right, and uh, and thanks for you guys for listening. Stay tuned next time for another episode of the Directors Club. 